This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Happy Tuesday to you. Top of the morning to you. A brand new day. A brand new uh, Donald Trump experience. Donald Trump is getting some serious tutoring from the President of the United States. We'll get into all of that fun today. Plus, how do antibiotic-resistant bacteria get into the environment? These kind of uh, megabugs, these superbugs, how are they... How do they get into your neighborhood? You're not going to like it. But some very interesting um, very interesting lessons about the dangers of raw sewage. Ooh. Not good. Not good. Man, what a uh, what a day. I think a cold has hit um, the team. Jeff now sounds like Barry White. Oh, baby. Baby, baby. Um, I can't get my nose to stop running. Really? Yeah. Hmm. I don't know why. I don't know why. Maybe it's one of these megabugs. Maybe you should tell it to slow down. Brunch. Anywho, um, got a lot to talk about today. We'll be getting to all of the fun, um, the excitement of, of course, the antibiotic-resistant bacteria, but also Donald Trump. And uh, what's going to happen with his cabinet? Every name in the world's being thrown out there. People are still frustrated by his um, Bannon, Steve Bannon. I keep wanting to say O'Bannon. Oh, O'Bannon. Oh, oh, Bannon. Steve Bannon still, uh, you know, frustrating a lot of people. They're convinced he's a racist, a misogynist. You know, he's he's the guy that uh, has been sculpting the Trump message supposedly and. Well, they need to get somebody in there to balance everything out. Yeah. And everyone's proud of the Reince Priebus selection, but... Reince! The the, uh, Bannon, not so much. So we'll talk about that fun, hear the latest and greatest Obama's, uh, you know, advice to Donald Trump as well. All that fun. But first, let's get to the headlines, uh, find out from Sadie Nielsen what's going on around the rest of the country. Sadie, what's up? Vice President-elect Mike Pence is dealing with a case over alleged email secrecy, the Indianapolis Star reported Monday. On November 21st, the Indiana Court of Appeals will hear oral arguments over whether Pence should be forced to release redacted portions of documents, including email communications between Pence and Daniel Hodge, the chief of staff in the government of Texas. The documents in question pertain to Pence's decision to hire outside counsel in a lawsuit Republican governors brought against President Obama for his 2014 executive action on immigration. Politicians on both sides of the aisle publicly mourned the passing of legendary reporter Gwen Ifill on Monday at the age of 61. The longtime PBS broadcaster was reportedly diagnosed with cancer just last year and remained private about her health struggles until up until her death. President Obama began his Monday press conference by expressing condolences for Ifill's family and colleagues. 
During a press conference on Monday in advance of President Obama's final foreign trip in office, he said that in a discussion with the president-elect Donald Trump, that the latter expressed interest in preserving the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. In my conversation with the president-elect, he expressed a great interest in maintaining our strategic relationships, Obama said during the press conference. Trump has frequently criticized NATO during his presidential campaign and in a March interview said, I think NATO may be obsolete and he would certainly look at getting rid of it. And finally, yes, a polling es- expert who promised to eat a bug if Donald Trump received more than 240 electoral votes made good on his promise on live TV. <laughs> oh, that's horrible. Uh, Sam Wang, founder of the Princeton Election cons- Consultorium, tweeted October 18th if you would eat a bug if Republican candidate received more than 240 electoral votes in the November 8th election. And he was asked on an interview with CNN on Saturday if he would still keep his promise. And he did um, by brandishing a can of gourmet style crickets from the point Mm. of view of a pet. (laughs) Oh, boy. So what is he in a frat house at Princeton? Apparently he's in a consortium. How do you how do you have a gourmet bug? Did oh, he get it from a whole, gourmet bug? Did he get it oh. from Whole Foods or something? Mm-hmm. Just dip it in chocolate. Chocolate. Just throw it in the microwave a bit. Mm. Cheese dusted crickets. Mm. The crunch is a sign of quality. Ooh, cheese dusted. Mm. Yeah. So they're like Cheetos. Ooh, now that I would try. They're cheat chickens. <laughs> Man, Sadie, that just grossed me out. Thank you. You've done your job. Gwen Eiffel passed away. Yes. That's sad. She, she's, you know, she's been around forever. Absolutely. And being iconic. A, and being able to do that in private. Yeah. Which is something that doesn't happen. It made me think if I had a terminal illness, would I announce it if I was at that level, like Gwen Eiffel's status? Do you announce it and let everybody in on the secret or do you just kind of quietly go? Well, most of the time it gets leaked by somebody yeah. for some reason. Some just jerk. Let, let, let them have their privacy. Yeah. And and let them deal with it. You would instead, go privately to your death. You yeah. would. I could tell you would. Sure. Just disappear. But wouldn't you want to say goodbye to people like the people that followed you? There's a lot of, I'm sure, surprise shocked people that love PBS and right. Gwen Eiffel. I'm kind of with you. I think when I'm at a party, I would prefer to kind of just sneak out without people knowing that I'm would leaving. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd like to just, I'd just stand there and say, I'm dying. Look at me. Look at me. I'm on Instagram. <laughs> on yeah. Instagram. I'll Instagram the whole thing. No, that's uh, – there's just, I'm sure, a lot of people that were like, what? She wasn't even sick. <sighs> that's sad. A lot of people. They come in threes, right? But we've had like – Twelve? D- depending on what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Giuliani, apparently the, people are saying he, he could very well be the Secretary of State. Yes. He's going to be something. I thought he would be, because he's such a gung-ho prosecutor, I thought he wanted to be the AG, the Attorney General. There's Chris Christie for that. He was yeah. a U.S. attorney. But we we already had him pegged for... Department of Transportation with Bridges, yeah, yes. Bridges, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. But apparently not. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Well, all these are open. You have Secretary of the Interior, Sarah Palin. What? She's, no, on, the, she's on the short list, apparently. I don't know who made the short list, but it's been listed on... What does her height have to do with this? It's not the height. It's, you know, she, oh. there's a list of three people. 
She's on the short list for what? Secretary interior. of the Interior. She goes hunting. She she's, knows about the interior of the she's country. She's killed animals. Right. Well, who hasn't in She can car? see Russia from her house. She never said that. No, she didn't. We always joke about that. She said she was the mayor of the town closest to Russia as I a can way see of Russia from my house. certifying her foreign relations experience. Um, interesting. Okay. And then uh, wasn't there a wrestler, an all-star wrestler that was going to be secretary of defense? Mm, I hope not. Okay. Because he was in the all-star wrestling world, wasn't he, for a bit? He, he, he appeared on a couple WWE at the time F yeah. programs. Now E, I guess. How about The Rock? Ooh, The Rock. Ooh, The Rock. That What a great name for your Secretary of Defense. He's got like three more G.I. Joe movies to make, so He can busy. do both. Why can't he do both? Uh, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't be known as The Rock, though. He wants to be taken seriously. So he's Dwayne Johnson. Dwayne. Dwayne. I can't take Secretary Dwayne Secretary Dwayne seriously. Johnson, mm. Secretary of Defense. He's got Baywatch coming out. He's busy. <laughs> the Bay <laughs> Baywatch. Maybe he could be over the Navy. Could be. Nothing that would bring more unity to the Navy than knowing that your commander played a lifeguard in a movie. <laughs> Baywatch. <laughs> That's horrible. So uh the neat thing about Obama is trying to reassure Europe that we'll be he hey, I had a good meeting with him. Yeah. Donald's not as wacky as he seems. Yeah, we don't know. I mean, so far, many of the policies he ran his campaign on, he's not many, but a few. He's starting to have different, I guess, ideas about. He's walking. It seems he may be walking back a couple proposals here and there. Yeah. Softening his stance here and there. Maybe we don't need a complete wall, but maybe fences on the majority of the wall. And on immigration, we're going to we're going to deport the criminals, not just everyone that's undocumented or yeah. before it was everyone i just it seems like i we don't know exactly where he's going to land on many issues maybe he's showing that he's open-minded and that he's willing to take ideas from other people this is fantastic yeah it's it's almost like he's a politician that says one thing no gets he's elected. not a politician okay just he got, he like got he elected was. being an outsider even though he's acting kind of like an insider and putting lobbyists in his that's what everyone's mad about because he's got all these lobbyists, so it really seems like... He's not really draining the if, swamp, right? It's as if Secretary Clinton won. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. But then again, maybe these are the, the lobbyists you want. But maybe really what you'll see is... It's real change. You'll have the lobbyists doing his will, not the will of the people that actually pay them. Wow. I don't see how they would do that, but... Yeah. That's what Kellyanne Conway said would happen. Huh? She's been right so far. Yeah, she's killing it. Do we know what Kellyanne Conway will be doing? Um, no. I thought maybe spokesperson, but she's not going to do. Yeah. That. Apparently, that's not her. It's, I was, uh, who, who is the spoke? Who would want to? Who would want she that? She doesn't job? want to be press secretary. He, I mean, in the end, that spokesperson is going to be. Well, Mr. Trump did not. He did say that yes, and he tweeted that four times last night. But uh, what he meant to say was this. That's got to be the hardest job in the world. Who's going to have the job of ensuring that he doesn't tweet? Oh, well, that will be his body person. That's The Rock. Yeah. The Rock's job just to keep well, no, the— No, the body person isn't a bodyguard. It's someone who no, just, just carries his bag. willing, yeah. But you need somebody that can carry his cell phone. Hmm. But it's got to be someone like The Rock that could actually keep the phone away from Donald. 
he could crush it in his pectorals. <laughs> There's a great visual. Sir, I told you not to tweet. Crunch. <laughs> Crunch. Laura, I... Laura Ingram for press secretary is the current rumor. Are you serious? She would give up her radio Leave show? Leave her nationally syndicated radio show to go take a government job talking to the media who she doesn't like. Wow. That's the worst job right there. She said she'd be great. In an interview, I believe, last night, she said it's an interesting um, suggestion or opportunity. It's not really an opportunity because no one's asked her, but she says we'll see what happens. I think it would be fun to be on the inside to see this whole thing go down. How many names are they floating just to make fun of people? Not you know what I mean, yeah. like the, not not make fun of the candidate, but like the make the the, the public and the media just go nuts. Mm-hmm. Let's that, toss this name out, see what happens. Uh, Sean Hannity will be <laughs> the spokesperson. Yeah. Oh, that would be great. Now, yesterday I was reading this. Um, there was a Vanity Fair article that said this is the biggest gift the popular press could have gotten. A cable news exec says Trump may have handed the media something of an economic lifeline. A never-ending Trump-fueled news cycle seems likely to drive TV viewership and page views. Oh, so good. This will elevate – this will be good for the media. Good. Good for the economy. The press takes him literally but not seriously. His supporters take him seriously but not literally. This is a yeah, writer from The Atlantic. Um, in the end, the early ratings uh, Trump garnered were better than any of his polls had anticipated and the enthusiasm for him in much of the country. Jonathan Wald, executive producer at CNN, uh, voiced his sentiment when he tweeted, in the end, the ratings proved more accurate than the polls. People want to watch the Trump show. Uh, is that what? <laughs> so either way, he's getting Trump TV. Yeah. Trump is that TV's what we're happened. calling it? The Trump show? That's what he said. Well, Instead of the presidency? <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Okay, so um, so here's here's a few clips from Obama tutoring President-elect Trump on on really what what needs to go down in the presidency. But I emphasize to him that look in a, in an election like this that was so hotly contested and so divided, uh, gestures matter, uh, and how he uh, reaches out to groups that may not have supported him, uh, how he signals his interest uh, in their issues or concerns. Uh, I think those are the kinds of th- uh, things that can set a tone that will uh, will help move things forward uh, uh, once he's actually taken office. Hmm. Uh, another point he makes is that tr- campaigning is not is is not at all like governing. As I said to the president-elect when we had our discussions, was that campaigning is different from governing. I think he recognizes that. Uh, I think he's sincere in wanting to be a successful president uh, and uh, moving this country forward. And I don't think any president ever comes in saying to himself, I want to figure out how to make people angry or alienate half the country. Uh, I think he's going to try as best he can to to make sure that uh, he delivers. But what about his temperament? I think what will happen with the president-elect is there are going to be certain elements of his temperament that will not serve him well unless he recognizes them and corrects them. Because when you're a candidate and you say something that is inaccurate or uh, controversial, it has less impact than it does when you're president of the United States. Everybody around the world is paying attention. Markets move. National security issues 
require a level of precision in order to make sure that you don't make mistakes. And I think he's, he recognizes that um, this is different, and so do the American people. Good yeah. for him for being bold with him. Yeah. Man. Or bold, yeah, yeah, bold with the press, too, telling what he said to him. That's and that's probably why the meeting was an hour and a half. Yeah. As they had a, this discussion, and probably <laughs> they both started realizing that they're both coming at least into that office, you know, Obama in 2008, mm-hmm. Trump now kind of in a similar situation where they're both the hope and change. Not a lot of governing experience, right? I mean, they were he, very he, similar that way. Obama was very, you know, he's, you know, you're, he said things to, when he ran that, you know, you're you're saying things because you're a politician running for office, realizing you can't do that. And Trump did a lot of that also, so yeah. they can relate on some different issues in different areas. So they spent the first forty five minutes outlining the uh, aspects of his temperament that maybe he needs to work on. <laughs> <laughs> Just kept going and going. Yeah, President Obama had this big, you know, yellow pad. Like 50 pages of, okay, I wanted to tell you about this. You can't say that. Uh, don't touch women. Mm. Don't do this. He had to go down the entire list. <laughs> wow. Good times. Well, uh, lots of fun there, folks. And the neat thing, it'll continue. As as President-elect Trump starts ramping up his his cabinet, his team, and we have about two months of uh, President Obama still out there. He's now in Europe. His final foreign visit is going to Europe. That'll be great, honestly. Kind of a farewell tour. He started in Europe. He's going back to Europe. We'll take a break. Come back. When we come back, we're talking about antibiotic-resistant bacteria. How does it get in the environment? How come we're seeing more and more cases of it? Up next, helping you live longer, this is The Matt Townsend Show. Each year, scientists and doctors change flu vaccinations in order to protect people from the newest mutated strands of the flu. The flu and cold season is in full swing and is expected to peak early in the new year. Bacteria, like viruses, become more resistant to the medicine and treatments that we have today. So how does bacteria and viruses become resistant? And how are they introduced into our environment? Here to speak with us today is Ph.D. Valerie Harwood, professor and chair at the University of South Florida. And we're talking about an article she wrote, How Do Antibiotic-Resistant Bacteria Get Into the Environment? Dr. Harwood, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, hi. Thank you. Good to have you um, uh, to, to kind of walk us through this. This is – it's uh, – it, I guess in the end, we hear more and more about antibiotic-resistant bacteria. But what fascinated me about the article is this this idea of how it gets into our you know our lives, how, how it gets into our neighborhoods, our communities. Can you just walk us through first of all? I guess bacteria. How is it different from a virus? And then talk about how these antibiotic-resistant bacteria are getting out there. Okay. Well, viruses are obligate or they have to be um, intracellular pathogens, meaning they have to live inside of our cells. And they actually use our cellular machinery to, uh, to grow and reproduce. And because they're so intimately linked with our cellular biology, there aren't, there aren't very many targets 
um, that we can use to eradicate viruses. So when you have the influenza or um, norovirus, for example, there's um, there's no simple antibiotic that you can take to rid yourself of the infection. Bacteria, on the other hand, are fundamentally different forms of life and use different um, cellular machinery. They have different structures in their cells. And so we we can actually capitalize on the natural um, microbial community's arm race, arms race in a sense, and use their tools to our advantage because antibiotics are natural products mm. originally. For example, a lot of people know that the first antibiotic was isolated from the, um, the, the fungus penicillium. And so during the you know, so-called the golden years of antibiotic, um, resi- antibiotic therapy exploration, uh, most of the antibiotics that were found were natural products. And so bacteria produce them naturally in order to kind of gain an advantage in mostly in their soil or plant environments. And so it's only um, intuitive that that bacteria, other bacteria, would have the capability to have some resistance to these antibiotics. And so, again, we have this idea of, of kind of an arms race of, well, you know, bacterium A is going to produce a compound that's going to inhibit bacterium B, and then maybe then bacterium B has a mutation or an alteration in some structure, and so then it becomes resistant to that antibiotic. And this has been going on mm. you know, literally for, for millennia before we happened upon the idea that we could use these natural products in order to um, contribute to our health. And so, you know, the, the, the arms race then as we see it in our, in our um, efforts to, to find new antibiotics that will not be, um, you know, that, that will not be vanquished by the bacteria is a difficult one because they have many ways of becoming resistant. And, and we, if I get this right, then um, viruses need need to live in your organism, uh, in your cell structure, to mm-hmm. to exist. Bacteria can become part of your uh, bacterial flora. I don't know what you call it. Uh, mm-hmm. Packaging, and so we carry a lot of bacteria with us that doesn't harm us. Maybe even helps us in some ways. Um, but but exactly. our body's really used to you know dragging along a lot of other bacteria, and it doesn't necessarily make us sick. But we might be a carrier of bacteria that might break down or make someone else sick. Well, right, and so we call that our norm, our normal flora, and we have a normal flora of our gastrointestinal tract. We have normal flora of our oral cavity. We have normal flora of the genitalia, and so all of our normal flora protects us against invasion from from pathogens hmm. and so um, but at times this um, even members of the normal flora during times of, of an imbalance in the rest of the flora can become pathogens so for example uh, all, almost all people carry staph, staphylococcus aureus in their oral cavity and a lot of them are colonized with methicillin resistant staph aureus which is the dreaded uh, MRSA hmm. And so most of the time, they're not; these organisms aren't 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 causing an issue. But if they if the person becomes weakened, if they become immunocompromised, if they have some sort of a um, a lesion, you know, an opening in the mouth, for example, that the organisms can get in and colonize, then it can become an issue. And kind of as you inferred, people can pass these these um, 
antibiotic resistant strains from one person to another, and while in one person they may be causing no issue, and another, again, especially if they have health issues or are very young or very old then and don't have as good of an immune system, then they can become um, uh, infected and and become sick. Mm. And this, this to me, this is what was shocking to me, is how this bacteria, it, it's in my body, I carry it in my mouth, in my system. Uh, it does protect me unless it becomes pathogenic. But it's also we, we live in a community where we all kind of as a communal body um, have access to maybe each other's. Talk about what's happening in um, St. Petersburg, Florida, in Pinellas County, I mean, and, and how we end up then sharing this bacteria. Well, the, um, the, the study that we did was um, precipitated by a, a, a big sewer line break. And so it was a pretty main line, and so the spill was over, um, over uh, half a million gallons in magnitude. So it was a, lot of, a lot of sewage that spilled. Mm. And it spilled into a drainage ditch, and that ran down into the, um, into the, uh, the bay waters. And so what we, what we were interested in was would vancomycin-resistant enterococci, I'll, I'll abbreviate them VRE for, for brevity, um, if the VRE uh, would be found in this sewage, and if so, would they persist for any length of time in the water and in, in, and in the um, sediment or dirt underneath the water in the drainage ditch? And so, uh, kind of to our surprise, we did find VRE. And the reason it was surprising was because generally this bacterium is um, localized to hospitals and occasionally to, to people who may who may mm. come home with it. So there is some community spread of VRE, but it, it's mostly spread in hospitals. And we had found it some um, five or six years before in hospital wastewater, but not in residential wastewater. So this was residential wastewater, and so we were um, a bit surprised to, to see it. And the, um, we were able to culture the bacteria for several days after the spill, and we were able to detect the genes for vancomycin resistance, which is called the VAN-A gene, for uh, 10 days after the spill. And so it not only was released into the environment, but it stayed there for some time. Mm. And so, so this is a cautionary, um, a cautionary tale for the U.S. in general because we know that our sewage infrastructure is getting old. Um, it costs a lot of money to update it or replace it. And so and people don't really realize how many, you know, relatively small huge spills happen all the time and how, much, how often these sorts of um, uh, spills get into the water that they may be using for recreation. And so this is, again, it's not, not meant to be alarmist and not to say right. that, oh, don't go in the water, but more like, you know, so let's think about the, how important it is for our, our, our wastewater collection system to be um, updated and to um, and, and to be impervious to uh, to release these organisms. You know, we don't want these breaks. We don't want cracks. We don't want this stuff getting out into the um, into the environment. Because we always thought it was, you know, these superbugs were kind of the hospital. They're in the hospitals. Um, so we were always afraid. Okay, don't go to the hospital. If you don't have to go to the hospital, don't go to the hospital. But Really, I guess the, the idea is this could be in any community. A lot of these places 
uh, you know, might get a large storm, which overwhelms the, the sewage system, overwhelms the pipes, and the then there's backup. And anyway, um, is there – I guess we are a community then really of bacteria and we're sharing bacteria. But it's almost like we have to get more on top of this as far as our systems go, our structures go, and, uh, I mean, just the infrastructure of the country. Yeah, I think that's important. I think another thing that's important in terms of um, in terms of preserving our antibiotics as such an important tool in our health, in our human in our human health and public health, is that we need to understand that antibiotics cannot cure everything. And so, if you're sick with um, and you go to the doctor and say, you know, you got a you got a horrible upper respiratory infection and you're just, you know, run down and tired and and you you feel really bad and you go to the doctor and and you say uh, I I just give me something. I need to take something. And mm. I and I know that people do this because I've talked to my friends who are healthcare providers and and people do. They say I need an antibiotic. And if you have a viral infection, you do not need an antibiotic. And in fact, taking that antibiotic will actually select for any antibiotic-resistant organisms, the small fraction that you might have in your GI tract, and then actually kind of amplify the population of antibiotic-resistant mm. bacteria. And this especially happens when people don't take their full course of antibiotics. And this is actually, it's a, it's a, it's a linked and also a separate issue, so that even some people who get antibiotics for um, a very valid reason they may take the antibiotic that should be taken for 10 days. They may take it for three days and feel better. And then they say, oh, I don't need to take this anymore. Oh, yeah. So they stop taking it. Well, then what happens is that potentially the, a, a small fraction of bacteria, maybe of antibiotic-resistant bacteria, who, were, who maybe had, had partial resistance to that antibiotic. And so you only took it for three days, and now what you've left in your GI tract is a population that's partially resistant. And so a lot of antibiotic resistant occurs by an accumulation of mutations. And so, mm. so now, or an accumulation of acquired genes. And so now you basically left a half resistant population in your GI tract that now only needs one more, one more gene or one more mutation to become fully and dangerously resistant. And so, um, so, so taking antibiotics for less than the um, prescribed amount of time is like rolling the dice in terms of in terms of eventually having a full blown um, resistant uh, bacterium residing in your GI tract that then could be spread to others or again could come into play when you uh, oh, if you if you become uh, you know compromised or just run down or or some mm. other uh, for some other cause. Great, uh, great advice. Um, and and I guess again, don't push it. If you've got a virus, this is it's not going right. to help. Um, we're speaking. We're speaking with Dr. Valerie J. Harwood, professor and chair at the University of South Florida. I believe chair of the Department of Integrative Biology. Um, she's walking us through an article she wrote about how do antibiotic resistant bacteria get into the environment. Well, one way is we're all carrying them, and then sometimes our infrastructure breaks down. Sometimes we're um, we're creating bigger problems by how we try to medicate, how we try to, to use antibiotics, uh, maybe inappropriately. Stick with us. We'll continue the discussion on the other side of this break. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're speaking with Dr. Valerie J. Harwood. She is a professor and chair at uh, the University of South Florida, and we are walking through an article she wrote on theconversation.com, How Do Antibiotic-Resistant Bacteria Get Into the Environment? She's been teaching us the, the differences, really, between bacteria and um, viruses, and also about antibiotics and the proper way to use them. Uh, one of the things, uh, Valerie, first of all, again, thank you for being with us and giving us your insight on this. Hey, you're welcome. I guess it's interesting. You bring up a good point. We we sometimes, it seems like, push the hand of our doctors by we go in there, we know we have sore throat, we are convinced, you know, your sister-in-law, just she just had some antibiotics and it got rid of hers, so let's get rid of yours. And it, we might be driving the doctors to over-prescribing antibiotics, are we? Well, that, and that, that can occur. And um, our training for, um, for physicians now includes uh, a lot of a, a lot of training on the um, the, the dangers of over, over prescribing antibiotics and the and our and our duty to be good stewards of antibiotics. Uh, so certainly, they the, the young physicians are and, and I mean all, all physicians are becoming more and more aware hmm. of this um, of this of this issue. But when we get the antibiotics, I mean, really, I guess they they could be doing. Uh, is that when they like do a a strep, to strep test to see if you have strep throat. They should be swabbing it to make sure you have it before they give you the antibiotics. Exactly, and and, and this, these tests are, are really rapid nowadays, and so you you, you don't really have to have to wait that that long. And then if that if that comes back negative, then it's you know you're going to use some you know, some over the counter medications to relieve the congestion and 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 hydrate and rest and and you know you will you'll get better. And a lot of people, um, you know, they take the, they get the antibiotics and they get better. They think it's because of the antibiotics when, in fact, they would they would have gotten better anyway. Hmm. I, I, so. I think we I envision it just as a lay person with a very small brain um, that bacteria, you know, you take you take the antibiotics, you kill the bacteria. They just disappear, never to be seen on this earth again. Then I leave as a pristine human being with no bacteria on me. Um but in reality, we're all just a bunch of carriers. And um, I, if I take antibiotics, and the more I take antibiotics, especially when they're not necessarily, the more it increases the likelihood that I will have strains of bacterium that are anti that are antibiotic averse. Is that right? right. Bat resistant. resistant. Yeah. Right. So then I become a carrier of a. Uh, of an antibiotic resistant bacteria, which may attack me, but also could attack someone near me. That's right, and and so that's where um, again, you you only want to take these things when you need them, and you only um, and you need to take them as long as they're prescribed for. That's really important. Right. What about? I've heard stories clarify this for me about people flushing antibiotics down the drain. Uh, just even though the antibiotics have been used by me, and even if I'm using them appropriately, if I then, you know, use the bathroom, then that becomes, uh, you know, that, that those antibiotics are also flushed through me and down into the sewage, and then I guess those can be picked up by other antibiotics downstream, or other uh, bacterium downstream. Yeah. So, um, what the the theory about what would happen then is that is. And so antibiotics exert what we call selective pressure on microorganisms, which 
reflective pressure just means that that the, the antibiotics are a um, a force that will um, cause only certain members of the bacterial population to be able to survive. And so there, we say that the antibiotics are selecting for the resistant ones. They're, and then that removes the competition from the non-resistant ones. It kills the, kills the non-resistant ones and then allows kind of a free open field for the resistant ones. And that's really the issue with um, with over-antibiotic exposure. And that would be in the in the wastewater uh, treatment system or in the environment as well as in, as well as in the human um human body. It's the selective pressure that's provided by the antibiotics, again, that selects for the resistant ones against the sensitive ones that is what's going to be the driving force to amplify hmm. that population of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. And there is a communal uh, force here which seems to kind of go hand-in-hand hand with the idea of vaccinations as well. One of the reasons why we tend to be very pro-vaccination as a as a as a country and as a community is because we're really only as healthy as the the majority of vaccinated healthy people. Um, We are a community of this. And so I guess part of this is getting everyone on the same page. Uh, How how do we get everyone up to speed? I know that's probably a major thing you're trying to do with your work with so many government agencies, but how do we, and what can we be doing just as average regular folks to make sure we are healthy back with bacteria, viruses, vaccinations? What do we do? Well, I think that um, the, uh, you know, the idea with vaccinations is, you know, the idea of, of herd, herd immunity, that it's, that it's almost, that it's almost everybody in the population is immune to a given um, infectious organism, then the, then the then the community is going to be going to be pretty safe. And so, with interesting analogy, because with antibiotics, it's almost it's almost inverse. Like yeah, the opposite. You want all the microorganisms to be to be susceptible to the antibiotic. Um, but the ideas of of you know of good health and good stewardship good stewardship for the community come in 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 both directions. But you know, it's interesting because I. I um, Gave a talk at a um, at a, a really neat conference um, last week, and it's called Abracam. But it's basically um, for specialized specialty for minority uh, students in science, and so it was a great conference. But a lot of the students there were asking me, well, the same question: What do we do about um, antibiotic resistance and how people view it? How do we get the message across? And so I had a couple of slides in my in my talk that might be of interest here um, to your listeners. And one of the things I said was, you know, the sheer um, toll on human health that people don't appreciate. So, for example, um, the CDC estimates the number of illnesses caused by antibiotic-resistant bacteria in the U.S. per year at over 2 million. Mm. And out of that, 23,000 deaths. Now, if you think about these 2 million illnesses, and then they estimate the per patient cost of antibiotic resistant infection at somewhere between eighteen to twenty nine thousand mm. dollars. So now you think about the amount of money going in to these infections. So the economic burden in the U.S. is about twenty billion in healthcare healthcare costs and thirty five billion in lost productivity. Unbelievable. Uh, so, yeah. So if you just think about the 
the toll that 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 these types of infections take on our public health. You know, I think it I think it kind of brings home the point that this is something that you know we can do something about it, and if we can possibly do anything about it, then we really we really need to. And so by again taking care of our of our infrastructure and being good stewards of of these wonder drugs, um, it's it's really uh, it, it can really make a difference. Another thing I wanted to point out is that you know some folks think that well okay we can just develop new new antibiotics, but if you if you look at the time course of antibiotic um, discovery and then look at the at the emergence of antibiotic resistance resistance in bacteria. Most of the time, we only have a few years between the introduction of a new antibiotic and the emergence of a of an, of an antibiotic resistant um, bacterial population. And so, it's really hard to get very far ahead of these of these bacteria because they are so good at mutating. They're good at at exchanging genes, so horizontal gene transfer, and um, and and so. Even in developing new antibiotics, you know, we still have to have to think very, very hard about how we're going to protect their efficacy as as time goes on. Hmm. And then, as a lot of people know, um, the uh, the business of developing new antibiotics it has not been very attractive to the big pharmaceutical right. companies lately. Right. If you think about it, something like think about something like a statin or a blood pressure blood pressure medicine that a person might have to use for um, uh, 20, 30 or more years, and then you think about an antibiotic that's used for 10 days and then and then no more. So, you know, so that's a, that's an economic disincentive for or it's, a, it's an incentive to, to, to make these long lasting drugs, these drugs that, that are used over a person's lifetime, versus an antibiotic that's used for a very short time. Yeah, and then and you've got to redo it every two to three years, figure right, out the next got, mutation. Yep, yep. You've got to keep you've got to keep ahead, and and of course, probably most people know that the development of these drugs and the testing is really really expensive, and so that means that we've had you know slow, slowly over time, fewer and fewer drug companies are are pursuing are pursuing the uh, um, development of new antibiotics, and so. We saw the same thing with Zika and some of the vaccinations for, right? Because it takes it takes a lot of research, a lot of money. There's so one of the ideas was let's let's subsidize it, right? Let's give some government right. subsidies to make sure we have companies that are interested in doing it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I and I have seen some some talk of that, and I hope that I hope that it, the talk continues because you know. It's really, it's important. Mm. What um, do we need to worry? I mean, again, I think everybody's heard of that one friend's neighbor's sister who caught that flesh-eating virus in the hospital after having a surgery. Um, is there really anything we can do about the the hospital-born, you know, superbugs? I think I think as as um as patients, you know, you can you can actually um, look up the performance of the hospital before you go in. So you you know you may have some choice in, in choosing choosing a hospital. Um, you can of course um, be aware. Hopefully, if you're if you're feeling good enough, you can be aware of how you know um, uh, the people around you are, are acting. So you know, are they are, are they washing their hands? Mm-hmm. Are they you know? I mean, again, you may not. 
you may not be able to see that when you're in the hospital. Um, but that, I think the big thing is stay in the hospital as short a time as possible. Yeah. Get out of there. Get yeah, home get where you're, you're in with your own bacteria, huh? Right. And, and you know, and, and the hospitals, I think, are very much along the same lines now. They, they don't want people to stay any longer than they have to. And for economic reasons, and I think that they also recognize that um, it's, it's really difficult to be, um, to, to completely halt the spread of, of antibiotic-resistant bacteria in an environment where, where it's everywhere and right. you know, where you're more likely to have them than in a, in, in a normal home environment. Well, Dr. Harwood, thank you so much. Uh, great insights and uh, I think lessons for all of us. Appreciate it. Again, Dr. Harwood is Valerie J. Harwood, professor and chair at the University of South Florida, chair over the Department of Integrative Biology and expert in water quality, microbiology, and microbial ecology. Man, it's good to have smart people around us, huh? Giving you the lessons you need to live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Stick with us. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! You know, isn't it interesting, the system that we live in, where, you know, we, oh, we're so worried about those superbugs. And it's so out of our control because some super flesh-eating megabug could take over your body, uh, MRSA, for example, and then our last guest tells us that pretty much all of us have some Staphylococcus virus or uh, not virus, uh, bacterium in our mouth. We might have MRSA in our mouth. It's there. It's kind of on us already, right? And we don't worry about it because we don't understand it. And then we are we go to the doctor, beg him for some antibiotics because we're sure. We've got a, a problem, but really we may have a virus. And then they give us 10 pills to take and we take seven of them because we feel better. And then we flush the other three. So in almost every regard, we're, we're ruining it. We're breaking the game. We're, we're breaking the deal. And we're the cause of our own problem. And yet we don't see we're causing it. And then we're worried about the hospital that can't stop some of these superbugs. This is a community effort. Somebody, you know, the, 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 sewer, the sewers flood in Florida and then the kids go play in the water and then bring home the bacteria and then grandma gets it. We're a community. And it's not just Florida. New York City, major storms, sewage floods the Hudson River regularly. And when it does, you know, I mean, a lot of, I'm sure there's not a ton of people swimming in the Hudson, but you may be in an airplane crash in the Hudson. It's just, it's, it's a, isn't it an interesting system that we live in? And the rest of us just sit here thinking, you know what, we're going to die because the president's Donald Trump. Trump may not be your biggest threat, folks. It may be your neighbor next door. That's not taking all of the pills he's supposed to take to get rid of that bacteria. It may be the neighbor up the street that just flushed her pills. It may be you that's carrying the virus 
It may be those that don't vaccinate. I mean, there's a million other threats in our world. I'm not trying to scare you, but there's a reality here. We're going to live or die together. So don't make the president of the United States your biggest problem. Trust me, there's so much more to worry about. Um, Not saying there's not issues there, but just be grateful you've got going on what you got going on, knowing what you're knowing. So, and do your part. If we all just do our part, we can figure this out as a species, as, as, as a group of people. We can make this work. It's hour number one. We'll be back next hour. More ideas, more information to help you live a smart life. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your coach, your guide on the side. You know, none of us had a handbook given to us right when we were born. So now we got to figure it out. We got to figure out what's going on in life. And this is the show where we are dedicated to help you living a, uh, to live a smarter life. Hmm. Last hour, we taught you all about bacteria versus viruses, how they come to be, what you got to watch out for. This hour, we will talk about why you are so frustrated with the, uh, with the Warriors picking up Kevin Durant. A lot of people are mad. Now they're a super team. By the way, they seem like a super team for a long time, like two years, three years. Now they're a super team, but they become now the villains of the NBA. Just like when LeBron went to the Heat, the Heat became the villains, the team you want to root against. With the, When the Bulls kept winning, we root against them when the Yankees. <clears throat> when I was a kid, I'd watch WWF. And there were always villains in that. And sometimes they'd be the good guy and sometimes they'd be the bad guy. Right. Like Hulk Hogan became Hollywood Hogan. Hollywood Hulk Hogan, right? Now he's a millionaire. Mega, mega millionaire. Isn't that right? Yeah. Um, Yeah, for other reasons. Because of some lawsuits. (laughs) Um, We'll be talking uh, about an article about why sports fans need villains. The Red Sox needed to villainize the Yankees. The Yankees needed to villainize the Red Sox. The Cubs never had villains or never were the villain because they hadn't won. The villain was the losing streak. The, the donkey, the goat. The goat, right? The goat was the villain So now for the, the streak's Cubs. over. Does that ruin the Cubs? Do right. They, do, the mystique, the— Now the... Cleveland is going to say the Cubs are the villains, and that'll go down for a few years. We'll be talking about why sports uh, fans need villains. Every think about it. From high school on, you have a nemesis. You have somebody that you, you've got to hate. We'll get you into the psychology behind it. It's pretty interesting stuff. Plus today, by the way, November 15th, clean out your refrigerator day. Something grows in the fridge today. Is it alive? It's living in the fridge. You know, as Mama used to teach me, if it's green and it's old, it's got to be mold. 
Mm. But, by the way... If it's green, it'll hurt your spleen. I don't know. Yeah, that's great advice. Put that on a meme. Uh, It also might go well with our last hour discussion about bacteria. Don't get rid of... Don't just throw out the mold in your fridge. Eat it. See what that does to the bacteria living in your gut. I am a doctor. You'll probably find out pretty quick if it was successful. Yeah. If it makes you sick, you shouldn't have eaten it. That's my rule. That's on you. Uh That's your fault. It is your fault. Today's the day. Clean out your refrigerator day. The neat thing here at BYU Broadcasting, they clean it out every Friday at 3.30. They do. That's what it says right there on the paper on the fridge. So really they're just teaching us to not clean up after ourselves. Is that your stomach? <laughs> wow. It was loud. Yeah, I mean, there's some of that. They're not, take your stuff home, but. Yeah. Clean I mean, up There's a penalty yourself. at the end of the week, too. They also have another note over the, the sink. Wash your stuff. Get rid of your junk. Don't throw your, don't throw stuff down the drain. I wish that would work, you know, at home. Like when I was growing up, if you don't throw out yeah. all that trash, it's going to be gone by Friday. <sighs> wow. Yeah. Mine was mine was more like, don't make me get up. Good lessons. Parenting 101. Today we'll be talking about sports fans and villains. We'll also be um, sharing some crazy stories. Uh, you may not have heard of Shaquille O'Neal recently, heard from him. But uh, there was a, th- I don't, I don't want to give too much away, but Shaquille O'Neal. There was an incident. Has been named in a theft. Mm. I've been waiting for years for somebody to take that guy down. <laughs> so you're looking for a villain. It may not be the same Shaquille O'Neal. I, for retaliation for making that movie Steel. It was that, bad. It was that, bad. Yeah, that bothered you. Or Kazam. That was equally Oh, bad. I love Kazam. Right. Now that's movie making. Um, we'll be talking about that arrest of Shaquille O'Neal. No, not the Shaquille O'Neal. Another one. Oh. Another Shaquille O'Neal. Yeah. <sighs> But not, I mean, the Shaquille O'Neal is just a stud. He wouldn't do anything like that. Yeah. All that fun. But first, let's get to the headlines with Sadie Nielsen. Find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Sadie, what's up? Six days after the election, the Associated Press has declared New Hampshire a victory for Hillary Clinton. The state had previously been too close to call. Even with New Hampshire's four electoral college votes, Clinton remains decisively behind President-elect Donald Trump, who has 290 votes to her 232 votes. With the New Hampshire called, Michigan remains the only undecided state, but its 16 electoral college votes would not be enough to give Clinton the lead. Donald Trump is seeking top-secret security clearances for his children Ivanka, Eric, and Donald Jr., CBS News reports. In order to gain those clearances now, the Trump children must be designated by the current administration as national security advisors to their father. When he is in the White House, Trump could put the request in on his own. The Trumps would have to go through background checks and fill out security paperwork. On Monday, Russian President Vladimir Putin spoke with Donald Trump on the phone, and the pair agreed to improve unsatisfactory relations between their two countries, the Kremlin said in a statement. Putin and Trump discussed terrorism and a settlement for the crisis in Syria and tasked their aides with putting together a face-to-face meeting. In his own statement, Trump's office said they talked about a range of issues, including threats and challenges facing the United States and Russia, strategic economic issues, and the historical U.S.-Russia relationship that dates back over 200 years. 
And finally, yes. Uh, again with China and their news going on. I don't What's know what up? it is. Um, officials at a Chinese zoo admitted that one of their animals in its wolf enclosure isn't a wolf at all. <laughs> it's a Siberian husky. <laughs> they threw a dog in there. It's the, they threw a dog in there. <laughs> Alarm was raised among Chinese animal lovers when a video emerged showing the Hiber- Siberian husky with an apparent leg injury November 6 inside the wolf enclosure at a zoo in, oh, in one of the husky. Chinese provinces. Uh, zoo officials admitted the dog was placed with the wolves to make the exhibit more interesting for visitors. <laughs> And they said the domesticated canine is respected by the wolves and the dog's leg injury was a result of an accident right. rather than an attack. Liar! Right. <laughs> Liar! Liar! The zoo said the husky has been temporarily removed from the enclosure to allow its leg wound to heal. A few years ago, another zoo in China had a chow dog. They let the hair grow out and they called it a lion. Just let it run around. It wasn't with other lions. They didn't have a lion, so they had a chow dog in there as a lion. And then people are like, wait a second. That's That's a dog. That is that poor husky, like, thrown in there. And he's like, hey, I'm innocent. Yeah. I'm innocent. (laughs) What did I do? Get me out of here. Oh, I bet he's had some long nights in there. Mm. Yep. Maybe he made friends. I don't think he he can make friends with wolves. We have a neighbor with a wolf. Hmm. Full-on wolf. Wow. Longest legs you've ever seen on a dog. (laughs) It's crazy. I mean, it's legal. He's all legal. Right. But he – I don't know where he got wolves. They're in the mountains. every night, he dances with them. Okay. Well, (laughs) to each his own. Totally true. He's had good moonlight the last few (laughs) nights, so I'm good. How about that super mega moon? Yeah. It wasn't so super last night, but it's still pretty super. That's crazy. Yeah. I think it's bringing out the crazy in people. Could be. I don't know if you've heard the story of uh, the guy that spray painted his car. Probably from Florida. Oh, Palm Beach. Yep. There you go. Palm Beach County. A man suspected of vandalizing nearly 100 cars Friday in Lake Worth, Florida. Left a clue for deputies. Or rather, listen to this. A spray painted one. Robinson and Nicholas were painted across two of the cars vandalized in the Palm Beach County area. 29-year-old Robinson Nicholas lived in the area. Deputies found Nicholas that night wearing a black T-shirt with a fluorescent green skull cross and uh, crossed words as the man suspected in the vandalism. All the, by the way, he, uh, he had slashed tires. Estimated, uh, no, 80 to 100 cars had been vandalized with either slashed tires, broken windows, and spray paint on them. I am the smart. S-M-R-T. I mean, S-M-A-R-T. And he spells his name Robinson, R-O-B-A-N-S-O-N. And he marked his car. And then what? They asked for ID. He's got spray paint on his hands. And his name is Robinson. We need to get Gloria Allred on this. <laughs> what what would Gloria do? She would uh She'd just represent she, him? Yeah, he you know, he's being discriminated against. Yeah. Yes, he is. I think he needs some help from Maxime. So we'll 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 bring in our mm. Russian criminal to give him some advice. Uh there is some advice we like to give the cuz we want to coach everybody but if you are planning on vandalizing a bunch of cars we we highly suggest you don't leave your name 
And make sure to use Wilson Stevens paint. Yeah. Because it's environmentally sound. It's environmentally friendly. It's high quality. High quality. Another story out of Florida. The Florida man named Shaquille O'Neal steals a veteran's wheelchair and then crashes a car. Florida man who shares his name with the now famous NBA star uh, was arrested late last month after police said he crashed a car, stole a man's wheelchair, and got into a chase with the officers. Shaquille O'Neal Clemens, 21, was being pursued by officers on October 25th in Largo when he sideswiped a vehicle and a school bus while in his car, and then he crashed. He got out of the car, stumbled over to uh, Robert Drews, who offered Clemens his wheelchair. Hey, take my chair. He said, I saw a big wreck and then saw a a guy helping a guy out of the car. His leg was broken or something. He fell down in the street. I let him sit in my chair so he would... He could uh, drive up to the front of the store. The guy's helping him get away. Take my chair. Actually, I don't know that he was... I don't think he knew he was going to take his wheelchair and try to get away. He was just giving him a chair to sit down in because his leg was broken. He's just helping a, he's helping a man out. What a nice guy. All well, of a sudden, I'm chasing my Shaq? chair down the street. You'd help Shaq. Man, if I thought it was the Shaq, for sure. I don't think the Shaq could fit into a regular wheelchair. Probably not. He would need some aftermarket adjustments. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just say that wheelchair would fold around him. So uh, if you were wondering what's happened to Shaq, well, I mean. A Shaq. Yeah. Not, not me Shaq. And Abednego. That's right. a different, that's a scripture thing. Excellent, yeah. Uh, the Shaq, well, Shaquille O'Neal Clemens. Mm. If you're wondering about him, yeah, he's in the pokey. Well, good. Glad we know where he is. Um, (laughs) Now you know. This was interesting. A new nationwide survey. It was the nation of Australia, but Mm. it does sort of extract out to, uh, you know, the rest of the world. A new nationwide survey has found that men in their 20s are spending more on clothes, shoes, and personal care than their female counterparts. Really? The survey of 1,000 found that males in their 20s will splash on an average of $493 every month to look good compared with the females who spend an average of $390 a month. Wow. Kind of a big deal. Yeah. Says men are much more into fashion these days, says a social researcher. Uh, And when it comes to appearance, it's not just aftershave anymore. It's all sorts of cosmetics from moisturizers to hair products to perfumes. Women spend on average $390 to look good, while men spend $493. So almost $500 a month to look good. Who has six grand a year to look good? Yeah. God, I'm just glad I look good automatically. You just roll out of bed. Here's need, Matt Townsend. I don't need any Dracar and apparently to make me smell better. One of the hottest toys of the upcoming Christmas season. What? It is called, let's find it here, a Hatchimals. Pardon? Hatchimals. They are an egg that hatches into furry creatures. Ew. There's five so-called species of Hatchimals, the Pingualas. <laughs> The Dragiels, the Alicorns, the Bertles, and the Bearkeets. Oakley Dogley. Yeah. Says you buy the Hatchimal, the toy comes in the form of an egg. It eventually starts to make cute noises. And the more the child plays with it, the faster it hatches. Once hatched, the Hatchimal goes through three life stages, baby, toddler, and child, and sings Hatchy Birthday between each stage. Oh, boy. <laughs> and the, 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 the concern is they're completely sold out. 
They're so lucky that the rights to Happy Birthday just became available again. They, right. would, they would get sued. It, you, to- and then you'd have a hatch a funeral. A Toys R Us in Pennsylvania, the manager says, uh, everyone lines up when they come in, and they go right out the door. Wow. They cannot keep them on the shelves. You know, this is makes me grateful that my children are beyond that stage. They're $60 a piece. Holy hatch trick. And there's, people are selling them on eBay for hundreds, even thousands of dollars. Hmm. And they look How like, big are they? Aw, see, little so hatchable, cute little hatchable. So you know, palm size, I guess. But the adults that are spending that kind of money aren't buying them for the kids. These are the types of adults that are buying them for themselves. Yeah, that's yeah. weird. Or to resell. Look at all my hatchables. Cute. See, the toy makers are still at it. <laughs> still at it. All right. Up next, why sports fans need villains. Think of the uh, team that you have villainized and you must hate. Or even the player that you just cannot stand because they beat that, uh, they had that last second shot, like Michael Jordan on the Utah Jazz. Oh, come on! We'll be talking with uh, an expert in sports marketing and uh, psychology and, and why we have to hate teams to get along in this life. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. November is a sports fan's dream, isn't it? The baseball season is wrapping up, basketball starting up, football's in midseason form, hockey's ready to go. With every sport comes the favorite to uh, to win the title, and most recently, the villain as well. What makes a sports team a villain? And is it the title that can be passed around from team to team? Here today to talk about this is Dr. Vasilis Delakis, a professor of marketing at Cal State University San Marcos and the visiting professor of sports marketing at the Sports MBA program at San Diego State University. Dr. Delakis, thank you so much for being with us. Um, thank you for having me. So apparently, you know, just as much as we love a winner, we also need to love a villain, some team we can hate. Absolutely. It's, it's part of what makes the experience enjoyable. Now, why, what makes it enjoyable, I guess? Why do we have to hate them? Well, the, the idea is uh, on, on a broader level that we, we pick sides, and obviously the side we pick are the good guys, and we want the good guys to win. But what makes the victory more exciting and more pleasant is when good triumphs over evil. Mm. So in order to, for that to happen, there must be something that is evil, and that's where... That's where the villains come in play. They they make the joy of of the victory much much higher because now it wasn't just that good one, but that good triumphed over so-called evil. Of course, what is good and what is evil, especially in the context of sport, is highly subjective. Usually, my side is the good one, and the other side is the evil one. Right. <laughs> it seemed like it seemed like the Golden State Warriors were always kind of the golden child uh, the last couple of years of the NBA. And then they pick up Kevin Durant, and they've turned now to the villains. What, what, what turned it? Yes, that, that, that was a very interesting case because you're absolutely right. The, the Warriors were, were actually quite loved uh, fairly universally. They, they were playing exciting basketball that no matter what team you were rooting for, people would enjoy watching them. Uh, Steph Carey was doing all those great things and, and created such a great following. So 
they were they were really the darlings and and almost overnight that that changed and uh, clearly that the durant move uh, had a lot to do with it but uh, on on a, on a basic level there are basically two things that happened that uh, uh, psych, sports psychology wise can explain that turn from darlings to to villains and one is the dominance aspect uh, as much as we liked uh, them for their exciting style of play they were kind of like the underdog trying to overcome you know the the challenges and it was exciting for them to win the championship but then they come back the next year and they're breaking records and mm. basically nobody can beat them and that kind of started making some fans not like them as much so that dominance made them less liked because now people are not as excited about seeing them winning and right. on top of that they, we have the move from Kevin Durant which to to be to be honest there was nothing wrong done by anybody mm -hmm. neither neither the warriors nor Durant did anything wrong he was a free agent and he picked the team that he felt was the best for him and you know technically that's that's how it's normally done by every player but other other uh, the fans and the media and other players saw that as a move where the the superstars are kind of, you know, teaming up together so they can win more titles. So it almost gave the Warriors the perception of having an unfair advantage over the competition, very similar to what happened when LeBron James went to Miami and they made the, the whole big three with Bosch and Dwayne. Right. So within, within basically the summer of the offseason, what used to be the darlings suddenly became now the, the despised villains. So the dominance and then, and then the other point was this, just the – just the players, the specific player switch? Well, it's it's the perception of what we call unfair advantage. Oh, that's so true. Case, the unfair advantage is just the team that gets the superstars together. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes you can have the perception of unfair advantage when you think a team gets all the calls. So a lot of people hate the Patriots in the NFL. Right. And they think, well, they get away with stuff. You know, they had the spy gate, they had the flayed gate. So, you know, they, they might get a, a call, a controversial call at the game. Uh, Duke basketball is, is a similar situation. Everybody's convinced that there is a conspiracy and Duke gets all the calls. So it's kind of that perception of unfair advantage. So when we think somebody has an unfair advantage, we're more likely to vilify them and root against them. Hmm. And I, I guess this, this becomes universal, and, and those two points play out really well. Almost every team I've ever hated were dominant and um, seemed to have some unfair advantage or I mean, I look at the – I don't hate any team really, but um, Alabama football or the SEC seems to have an unfair advantage against everyone else in the country simply because of money. And uh, and all of a sudden you're thinking, how can a regular team in the in, – you know, in college football keep up with this money juggernaut? Well, uh, actually you brought up the SEC and that, that's another great example. In this case, you know, the villain is not just a – a specific team, but an entire conference, and everybody who is a fan of a non-SEC school is convinced that SEC is getting preferential treatment right. from, you know, poll voting to to calls in in games. So, uh, the, the irony here is when we talk about unfair advantage, it's something that's quite subjective, perceived, right? Not I necessarily real. All to their favor, but you know. Most of the time, this is not something that is easily proven one way or another. So if I already dislike that team and think of them as the villain, and I think that they're t getting unfair advantage, well, guess what? Every time I see a game that there's even remotely a call that could have gone the other way, I say, well, there we go again. See, they got the call. Hmm. 
So it, it really reinforces my perception of them as a villain because I keep seeing them getting getting the unfair advantage and the calls and, and the good players and the money. Yeah. Is it is it good for sports um, to have this kind of d- dichotomistic or dual paradigm going on? Because every team has kind of an arch rival, an arch enemy. Uh, BYU has the University of Utah, and those rivalries have gotten so tense in the past and so kind of misinterpreted that even in basketball, they called off this, they called off playing with each other or against each other um, for years. The University of Utah said, we don't want to play. We don't want to get our guys hurt. This rivalry is not worth it to us. Uh, it, it, it is good for, for the leagues in the sense that it creates higher interest, and higher interest means uh, big, uh, bigger ratings on television, which consequently for the league means a higher uh, TV contract next time they're up for negotiations. So the ratings are important, and traditionally the networks are trying to schedule the so-called villains as much as possible because the villains have a, a fairly universal appeal. Um, basically the idea here is that as a league, it is to your best interest when the fans have fairly strong and intense emotional responses to the teams, either positive or negative. Hmm. You just don't want teams that are kind of in the middle. So no offense to the Milwaukee Bucks fans, but you know <laughs> this is kind of like a team that's kind of in the middle. Yeah, they offend no one. <laughs> <laughs> people, people don't hate them, but people don't really care either. So if they're in the NBA Finals, well, there might be some interest because they're like an underdog story or something like that, but it won't attract the same level of interest as... Uh, as a villain or a team that's that's well liked. So yeah, I could even see it when and I, I read it in your article uh, when Kevin Durant left Oklahoma. They um, everyone there's burning his jersey. So <laughs> the hatred is so great they burn his jersey, which means oh they better go buy someone else's jersey. So I mean it probably does promote a lot of movement of you know pair of of the goods of, of marketing. It does, and also it, it increases the likelihood of Oklahoma fans now also watching Golden State Warriors games. True, huh? It wasn't the case. And so to cheer against them. For them, too. Yeah, and it's it, this is really just human nature, isn't it? I mean, it, it seems like psychologically we all need someone to hate. You know, we have a god, we have a devil, we have, you know, the good, the bad, we have the Kardashians, we have all these people that, that we just need to not like. Yes, and, and this... this is, is, is very, very evident in entertainment. In fact, this theory that, that we're using to explain what's happening in sports was first introduced in, in entertainment. And if you think about entertainment, the, the classic formula is creating good guys and bad guys, having the heroes and the villains, mm. having a struggle between the two. Uh, initially, it might even look like the, the hero is losing and the villain is winning, but then in the end, in most movies, you have that resolution and everything is turning around. Uh, look at Disney. I have four kids, and they, they enjoy Disney movies. And a big part of it is right away. So, so who is the bad person? You know, so right. they want to identify that person, and then they celebrate when when the hero, the protagonist, ends up ends up winning. So this is you're right. This is a basic need psychologically to see to see the good triumph over evil. So. Evil is an important component of that. So as a marketer and as a kind of a sports marketing expert, does this, I guess, do you, do you ever truly market your team as the villain? 
or is that appointed by someone outside of your marketing department? Uh, yes, usually it's, it's, it's very unlikely that you would market a team as a villain, your team as a villain. Um, but what has happened is individual people, individual athletes, uh, very cleverly might brand themselves as a villain, so they become more more relevant, and people might talk about them, and they might get more publicity and attention. So you you rarely sit on a on a team level because that might be kind of pushing the envelope, and it might be risky. But on an individual level, uh, athletes might might kind of assume that role hmm. and and sell it. So either they truly are like that, or they're playing that role so they can they can become more marketable and get more attention. Well, like Dennis Rodman. Yeah, man. That, that, that's I mean, a good example. Yeah. He was like the hatchet man. <laughs> he was the guy that would go get, he'd foul out every game. Some of that was just him, but then yeah. he, he seemed to play it up even more. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That That's a good example of somebody who maybe there was something there to begin with, but he clearly made a point of, of making himself look that way. And as a result, you know, he became a more marketable person. Maybe not for a you know typical household good. Yeah, not for your kids. I want to play it safe, but for certain brands, this works really well. Mm. Does um, I guess is this? I guess this is true in every sport. I mean, even in tennis, some of the seemingly you know more cordial sports, you can have a villain. John McEnroe used to be the crybaby villain that you know had the anger issues. Yes, I, I don't think that's uh, that's sport specific. You're right. Uh, the the overall idea here is wherever there's competition, so sports by their nature involve competition, and the, the competition makes makes people want to take sides. And, and in some cases, even if the, 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 the desire to vilify somebody might be uh, leading us to find reasons to, to vilify people or teams, even if they're not really there. Yeah. How interesting. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Vasilis Delakis, who is um, at Cal State University, San Marcos, and he is a visiting professor of sports marketing at the Sports MBA program at San Diego State University. We're discussing an article he wrote in the conversation about why sports fans need villains. It's good business, folks. And when we come back, we'll talk about uh, some other franchises that have Maybe even build a franchise around um, being the villain or the spoiler, sometimes we call them. Interesting psychology behind it all. Might even be good to be thinking about who in your life you've been villainizing. Because maybe you're using the same theory to just create a better story in life. Stick with us, helping you see the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. Even the Beach Boys know that uh, the heroes and villains, you got to have both. The whole song here, heroes and villains. Joining us is Dr. Vasilis Delakis. He is uh, a professor of marketing at Cal State University, San Marcos, and is visiting professor of sports marketing at the Sports, sports MBA program at San Diego State University. Today he's talking to us about um, the, the need to villainize uh, a team, or a player, and, and how marketing sports marketers use that to create really a, a pretty complete story with hopefully eventually 
a struggle, a resolution, a beautiful ending where, you know, the the hero is made from the non-villain and, and overcomes the villain. Dr. Delacus, thank you again for being with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Is there um, – so does this division where we create a villain, is it – is it intentionally being created by marketing departments? Is it just a natural flow of like the sports journalists creating, always using these tragedy, heroic villain stories? How how does it emerge? Is it intentional or is it just a byproduct of life? Well, well, in the context of sports, the the, the nature of the competition has, has a lot to do with it because Obviously, for many fans, they they have a, an affinity for a specific team to mm. begin with, and the ultimate goal is to see that team win the championship. So all the other teams are obstacles getting in the way of their team winning the championship. So just for that, you know, th- that's enough of a reason to dislike them. Right now, during the course of the the competition, things are happening. You know, there are bad losses, bad calls. You know, stars leaving one team to go to another. So these are all reinforcing the desire to to dislike to dislike the other team. So I would argue that that the nature of sports is such that mm. this is almost inherent. That it's, it's it's an inevitable part of it. And you know one can argue it's also part of what makes the excitement and the enjoyment as hard as it is because sports provides really extreme emotions. You know the the elation when your team wins versus the agony when your team loses. And those emotions are magnified even more when it, it, they uh, they pertain to to the to the rivalry game because there not only your team lost but it lost to to the hated rival mm-hmm. so that makes the pain even more and on the other side if your team beats the rival not only is your team won but but the rival lost too so so the joy and the and the ecstasy is even higher and it. I mean, I guess that's true. The the metaphors we're always using are about war. We're going to battle. This is just the just the competition, the intensity of the competition. I've seen it just in little league sports. You know, that one team you can never get by in the championship becomes your rivalry and uh, your nemesis is. And I've never thought of it the way you brought it up, but it does. It does actually create it doubles almost the life of the league because I not only love my team I hate that team and I love to see that they lose so I'm always going to check two scores now instead of one score Absolutely and and for a diehard fan th- th- this is part of of what being a diehard fan means you know being being a Red Sox fan means you like the Red Sox but automatically it also means the hatred for the Yankees and and so on and so on for every rivalry and and that creates a much stronger interest in the league. Hmm. Do do you know if the journalists become this crazy about it? Um, because it seems like their job would be to be fairly objective about the league. But they're also the ones writing these storylines and probably initiating some of the the fodder behind these these wars. Uh, yes, I, I I think definitely the the stories in relation to. To the rivalries and the games that are being written contribute uh, to, you know, the, the excitement of, of such competitions. I, I I don't know if they're doing it intentionally in the sense of, of creating interest, but I, I think being being such a 
an inevitable part of sports, it's definitely something worth reporting and discussing. So it's not surprising that we see so many of the stories addressing that, including what happened in the summer with, with Duran and the Warriors. It looked like almost every other article that was NBA-related uh, mm-hmm. had, had you know, discussed that issue. Is uh, is there a downside to this Do you, that you see as a marketer, uh, a downside to being branded the you know the villain or the brute uh well uh, th- there are a couple of downsides one one is marketing related and i think the other one is more social implications related so on the, on the marketing level um there is the sponsorship and endorsement aspect of it and uh, for many years research has shown consistently that uh, the fans who liked a specific team or a specific athlete would uh transfer that liking to brands that were associated with them. So sponsoring had uh, a very uh, important benefit in the sense that the brand would become more attractive and sell more product because of its connection to a team or athlete that people liked. Well, about 10 years ago or so, we did some research with NASCAR drivers trying to test is the opposite true. So there is lighting transfer. Is there also dislighting transfer? And we found with, with NASCAR fans that not surprisingly, they had more positive responses to the brands that were associated with their favorite drivers, but also they had negative responses to the brands of the drivers they disliked. And this kind of created you know, more of a uh, research interest in me and, and other people where now we've been looking at the potential backlash of sponsoring a rival. Not, not uh, uh, an athlete that's uh, a villain because of a scandal or something bad they did, but because they're a villain simply... Uh, they're a villain simply because they're associated with a rival team. Hmm. And consistently the results are showing that this, this could backfire. And in a uh, more recent study, we found out that actually the, um, even if we include information about the quality of the product, so-called some objective arguments, the diehard fans are still going to use the connection to the team as the primary factor so they're willing to pick a so-called inferior product if it's connected to their team over a so-called superior product product if it's connected to the rival, confirming mm. that diehard fans are not very rational, which we kind of knew. Yeah. But, but it also shows that from a marketing standpoint, especially the national companies have to be careful about h- how they sponsor. And what a lot of brands now are doing is they're sponsoring both teams, and this way they're avoiding the backlash. Oh, there you go. So, that, yeah. you know, Dunkin' Donuts is sponsoring both the Cubs and the White Sox, and they're calling themselves official sponsor of Chicago baseball. And I think it's brilliant. Yeah, it is. You're getting the love from everybody, and you're getting uh, – you don't alienate anybody. Yeah. Uh, it also can be very advantageous for local sponsors because as much as uh, uh, fans in Philadelphia hate the Dallas Cowboys – they will never go to Dallas to buy a car. So if a local car right. dealership in Dallas sponsors the Cowboys, they get all the love from the Cowboy fans, and the hatred from the rest of the country is irrelevant because mm. they're not really marketing to them. So you, you can get around that. But the, the other issue is more of the social implications one. And thankfully, it's not as big of an issue here in, in the United States. I mean, we have incidents, unfortunately, here or there, but I think it's more of the issue of aggression where where the, the dislike and hatred for the villain becomes so strong that fans almost take it upon themselves not to inflict pain, yeah. either by attacking other fans or doing other 
uh, aggressive acts like the uh, the Alabama fan a few years ago that went and poisoned the trees mm-hmm. on the Auburn campus to to make a statement about its rival. And I think that's the part where it's it stopped being just part of the fun and it's actually becoming dangerous. Like the hooligans in Europe. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's huge. Do you do you sense one of the things the NFL is battling are some ratings issues and a ratings drop? Um, do you sense that this might be having any play in that? Just simply because the Patriots seem so dominant. Uh, I mean, there's if all of a sudden the dominant team is always winning against the good guys, would it lower ratings? Uh Actually, I would argue might might do the opposite because now you you'll be more likely to watch the next game because this is the game where the the villain might lose. So so you're excited about that. Frankly, I think with the NFL it was just it, it just so happened that they had a lot of unexciting, poor quality, bad games early on, mm. including their primetime games, and that kind of hurt because during the primetime games, people don't have an option of watching something else, another NFL game. Right, they got one uh, game. Even even this past weekend, I think we had so many good close games that I won't be surprised to see a, a spike in the ratings just because the product starts looking better. And as we get into the playoffs, you know, I think the NFL is excited because the Cowboys are doing well, and they're a team that people either love or hate. Right. And the Patriots are doing well, and they're a team that people either, either love or hate. So that that's great for the NFL and the ratings. Oh, isn't that interesting? They win either way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's. I think it's great insight. As as uh, as we wrap up, I, I guess any advice for just us, the average fan who doesn't, who seems to always end up, um, you know, losing to the villain. The, the average fan who always loses to the villain? Yep. What do you do? How do you overcome that? That's, 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 a, that's a hard one because the, the challenge with sports, unlike the traditional entertainment, is they're unscripted. So with traditional entertainment, you find a way in the end to make the hero win over the villain. Right. But, but in sports, you can't do that. And I always remember a few years ago when Duke played Butler in the national championship game, and all of the country was rooting so hard for Butler – and I think it was 51-49, and Butler took a, a shot from from half court as the time was expiring. It hit the rim and it went out. And I remember turning to my friend and said, "If that was the movie, we'd have gone in." You know? Yeah, exactly. So it's it's, it's, it's tough true. Sports. The, the only thing here is it's, it's the patience because the longer this pain lasts, the more exciting it will be that one time that it's over. And the Cubs are a great example of that. It wasn't a specific team that was the villain, but just the fact that they couldn't win. But, you know, the weight made made the, the excitement so much higher when it did happen. It's so true. So true. Dr. Vasilis Delakis, thank you again so much for your great work and uh, insight into why we need villains uh, continue your work there at Cal State University San Marcos and as visiting professor at uh, San Diego State University. We'll take a break. When we come back, we will talk with Caitlin Thomas about uh, maybe a, a date gone wrong and uh, find out why she has to villainize some of her past dates. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Well, with our younger generations becoming more and more dependent on technology, we're seeing a decline in the old social traditions. 
Caitlin Thomas is here with us this morning to talk about one aspect of our culture that she thinks shouldn't be forgotten and we should continue to pass down our to our kids. Caitlin Thomas, hello, welcome to the show. Good morning. So um, this was about a d- dating. You're going to give some dating advice. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, I have recently had to enter back into the dating world. Dating world, world yeah. Um, and let me tell you. It's still just as bad as I remember it being it ain't seven pretty. months ago. No. Is it? Is it? I just really hate it. Why? And it shouldn't be like this. This should shouldn't be dating, exciting. My mom's like, dating used to be so fun. And I'm like, this isn't fun. <laughs> You're like, quiet, mom. There's so many things missing that I think as you know, parents need to remember to teach their kids. Right. Because I'm sure parents did a great job. Maybe they need to reteach it to their older millennial but children. I think the assumption is that they would listen to us. True. Because so they, maybe they can just have them listen to this and say, listen yeah. to what this young listen girl said. Listen to this, what this young, wonderful, amazing female producer just said. Just taught us. So here's what you need to reiterate to okay. your children. What is that sound? <sighs> that is a sound Turn of... Turn it off. That's the sound of a phone call. In okay? the middle of the date. If well, No. But if you're going to set up a date, text don't it. text him. No. See, You're saying call. Call them to set up the date. Well, why don't you just do it face-to-face? Well, because sometimes you get set up, and so, you know, someone, like my sister gave some guy my number and said, hey, call her. And he actually did. He called me, and that was impressive. I haven't been called for a date in years. That's great. But don't text. Like, no. I know texting is good to get to know each other, but. Write a letter. Yeah. Send it in the mail. Might take a little <laughs> bit longer to, to get a response. Jeff likes to write but... a letter to his so call. Remind your sons or your daughters yeah, if they're going to ask to call. Great advice. To Facebook and Instagram should not should not be used to set up a date. You can really? use it to like get How someone's about Tinder? phone number. No, get their phone number off of the social media and then call them. Don't ask me out right. over Facebook, um, please. Hi, right, this is Jerry. You gonna go out with me? You're... Like that? No. How about this? Use your best voice. Are you from Jamaica? No. Because Jamaican me crazy. <laughs> do you want to go out Thursday night? <laughs> See you guys. That was Boom. easy. That's how you do it, Jeffrey. Matt's even married, so put it that in worked. a letter. Here's a third one. It's a first date. If it's a first date, especially like a blind date or a setup, yeah. Don't plan a twelve million hour date. Why? Honestly, I have you don't want an all day date. No. But we've kind of got you, and we've already spent some money on you. So just a simple dinner or ice cream will suffice. Honestly, that's good. That's good to know. Like you don't the girl, especially if it's a setup. Like you don't need no. Just you don't want to be simple. trapped. Keep yeah, keep it casual. Have a date where you can have lots of conversation. Easy enough. My mother-in-law went uh, skiing on a first date. Really? So had to be stuck with that guy on the ski lift and all the date. way back home. That's yeah. a long date. That's yeah. And you Ugh. know what, guys hmm? or girls, whoever asked it, pick up your date. Should girls ask the date? Sure, why not? I know. Do they, though? They, every time I tell the I ladies don't. around here that you ought to be asking guys out, I don't. they're disgusted with me. I don't, but I think you can. But she doesn't need to do the asking. Yeah, no, I she's really got should. plenty. Caitlin doesn't. Okay, but I just went on a date, and I had to drive. I didn't ask. I didn't plan the date, and I still had to drive. That's all right, right? No. Pick up your date. <laughs> what if, what if the person doesn't have a car? Date, when you pick up, but then you need to find someone that has a car. Ask your dad. <laughs> And then when you pick up your date, open the door for your date. Wow. This seems so old-fashioned. I thought we were beyond all of no, this. No, we're not beyond this chivalry. Okay, good. It's not dead? And num- number six, um, 
Yeah, so you're in an, if you if you open the door, that's what your date's going to say. Nailed it. She's going to get you. Will she really? So when you when I shut the door, she would say Nailed in, it. Yes, cuz that's what I said last night when my date opened the door. For so me. what if there's a couple on the back seat and you didn't know that and you're like, "Nailed it." Well, there are worse things, right? Okay. Okay, now here is 6. Ah. If your date wants to go home or your date is pushing, saying, "I should probably get home." Take your date home. But the long way, right? No. Take your date home. Really? If, if your date's mentioning they need to get home for something, take your date home. Don't try and convince them that going home is a bad idea. Did that happen to you? You seem... Quite possibly. And it was awkward. You seem angry. Like I was a little bit upset. You're like, I need to go home. And he's like, but we're only a quarter of the way through the date. Through this 12 billion hour long date. Yeah. Yeah. Let your date go home. You seem really frustrated. Also, Um, we've only got time for one more. Last one. Excuse me. Excuse you. If your date says that they love something, it's probably a bad idea to talk about how much you hate that one thing. That's a great point. Don't do that. Makes it awkward. Take them home. Don't put down what they like. Lots of great lessons from Caitlin. Teach your children. Millennials, please date the right way. Date the right way and call Caitlin at 801 572. Two two four nine. That's not what Caitlin I was Thomas. For. She's available. Check her out on Tinder. <laughs> I'm not on Tinder. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at one eight five five Chat BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. We got a great program for you today. Julie Nelson will be joining us, the the child whisperer, the bomb mom, we call her. And today she will be talking about how to raise a kinder, less entitled child. It's a big deal. You don't want to, you know, raise a spoiled brat. And then they end up going out on dates with Caitlin. And what, then we end up hearing about it. What do you get when your child is a brat? Are you singing on the show? Spoiled and the, the, the Siamese cat. What's that from? <sighs> from Anyone? the dude Willy Wonka. It's from Willy Wonka. Very good. Yeah. Band on the show. Singing. No singing on the show. The only people that ever sing on this show are you and Terry. Have you heard Terry sing? Terry's a great singer. Not happening. I'm not laughing at your abilities, but I've just never heard you sing. Have There's you seen him dance? There is a distinct lack of ability, oh, so okay. it'll never happen. Okay. Have you seen him dance, though? Awesome. Awesome. Got a great show for you. We'll be talking how to not raise a, uh, you know, a, a spoiled child, how to raise a kinder, less entitled child, plus... BYU Sports Nation, of course, will be joining us, um, telling us what's coming up on their show today. We will also be uh, talking about how to clean out your refrigerator, because today, my friends, is Clean Out Your Refrigerator Day. Don't forget to clean out the fridge by Friday. Take your stuff home. It's living in the fridge, folks. I've seen some stuff living in the fridge. Green and hairy. Got to watch out for it. 
We'll get to that as well as a hero of the day. Got a lot to get through. But first, let's get to Sadie Nielsen and go through the headlines of the day. Sadie, what's going on around the rest of the country? Google will ban fake news sites from using its advertising software, the Wall Street Journal reports. The move will prohibit the placement of Google AdSense ads on pages that misrepresent, misstate, or conceal information about the publisher, the publisher's content, or the primary purpose, the company told the WSJ. Websites that published deliberately false news items saw a surge in traffic, influence, and cash this election after social media users rushed to share too-good-to-be-true articles. AdSense is the most popular revenue source for fake news publishers who now stand to lose some of their cash flow. President-elect Donald Trump is planning to follow through on the campaign talk of totally overhauling the world's network of trade deals, according to a memo drafted by his transition team. CNN reports the administration will either renegotiate or withdraw from the North American Free Trade Agreement. The International Criminal Court's chief prosecutor said in a new report that the CIA, along with other U.S. armed forces, may have committed war crimes against detainees in Afghanistan. Members of U.S. armed forces appear to have subjected at least 61 detained persons to torture, cruel treatment, outrages upon personal dignity on the territory of Afghanistan between the 1st of May 2003 and the 31st of December 2014, according to the report. Investigators have not yet determined whether a full-scale investigation will be carried out in Afghanistan. And finally, yes, in your suitcase news. Hmm. Hold um, on. Suitcase news? Yes. Okay. We're just going to develop a new topic here. Okay, great, on the spot. great. Suitcase news. Um, a robot suitcase that can move itself and follow you around the airport will mean you will never have to carry your luggage again. Oh, how great. Yes. This incredible device will stick close to you as you make your last-minute dash for your flight as fast as 6.75 miles per hour and is smart enough <laughs> to be able to navigate obstacles and crowds. And if that wasn't enough, the tra- Travelmate suitcase will also double as your travel partner. You can even name it if you choose to. Um, it works in a similar way, similar way to autopilot systems and vehicles like Tesla cars. And uh, the robot suitcase will also understand if you've lost it or if it has been stolen and will take appropriate measures to get back to its owner. Maybe it's on the briefcase. Look on the... Oh, yeah. It's right here. Samsonite. I was way off. <laughs> Beautiful. I that, am so excited to try one of these I think this is really cool day. because then it just kind of follows you around. It like stays at your heels, just kind of nipping at them. Yeah. And when the uh, airline says, I'm sorry, sir, we've lost your luggage, you'll be like, um, no, you didn't. I know exactly where it is. And uh, it's you just right there. Back to me. Yes. Yep. You can track it. Boy, imagine the day it prepares a drink for you. It maybe pulls out a lunch. You have so many options now. I think I would call my suitcase Mother. Mother. Mm-hmm. So you would say, "Mother, Not like come Jeeves. here." Hello, mommy. <laughs> she wow. travels with me. Mine would be Alfred. Really, the name of your butler? Yes. You carry your mother in a suitcase. Bizarre. Only when I have to. You kiss your mother with that mouth. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Um, great stuff, Sadie. Thanks. And and by the way, in the new category, we've opened up suitcase news. I'm dying to hear about tomorrow's suitcase news. This, uh, boy, this is a crazy, crazy time. Um, We all are getting ready for the holidays. Christmas, Black Friday is just about two or three weeks away, two weeks away. And it's going to get ugly. 
it's going potentially to get even worse because UPS may strike. Well, a portion of it, possibly. What, what portion? And it looks like it may actually happen after Christmas. Oh, good. But, you know, things can yeah. happen quickly. Because so the not UPS sure employees, they're not stupid. 1,200 mechanics. Right. Who work for UPS, specifically on their airplanes. Oh, boy. Right? That's a so, big deal. Yeah. They are overwhelmingly have voted to go on strike. Teamsters Union represents UPS mechanics have been seeking a new contract for the par- from the parcel carrier for more than three years. Since the union has uh, yet to ask for permission to strike, it's unlikely they'll be able to start the strike before Trump is inaugurated on the 20th. Unlikely. This is why it's so smart. You don't want to be UPS ruining Christmas. No. So they, they're thinking, okay, we're just letting you know, terrifying everybody, get some bad press, but we'll do it after. The union says 98% of those who participated in the strike voted to authorize one. Wow. Right? So they're all kind of on board, except for those, you know, one don't or two Don't use guys. the word on board, because those planes aren't flying. There's one or two guys apparently in Cleveland that need a little talking to, and so we'll, we'll get that up to 100%. The Railway Labor Act, which governs labor law in the airline and railroad industries, requires unions to get a f- approval for uh, of a federal mediator before they can go on strike. Hmm. If permission is granted, they must then await uh, wait through a 30-day cooling-off period before actually striking. Wow. So they've got to get permission from a... Third-party mediator, mediator, and then if they're okay to do it, then they have to wait to cool off. Then they can strike. Boy, it's like six levels of striking. (laughs) Okay. UPS UPS mechanics are not the only union seeking new contracts under the uh, Railroad Labor Act. Uh, What's the dispatchers for UPS? Flight dispatchers are, are, are looking to strike. Spirit Airlines... Mm. For their pilots, mechanics at Southwest Airlines are among just a few of the groups that are currently looking at striking because this is, of this labor could strike. could be crazy. Could be. Wow. I bet. I, uh, I used to work at uh, this company. Big Brown. Just before. They, they actually had a strike, and then I heard all the stories. You know, what can Brown do for you? Yeah. Man, there was a lot of really... You know, raw feelings right after that strike oh, between the, management and the right, drivers. Right. Woo. It gets ugly. Yeah. I was glad well, I just luckily, sort of floated in and floated out before that happened. Luckily, Donald Trump will be on it. Yeah. Bring in a measured, good temperament. Yeah. He's going to really, really help that situation. He, I don't know if you heard this. He's one of the greatest negotiators of all time. That's what he said. In the art of the deal. Well, he'll be able to cut a new deal. Uh Interesting headlines for you there. Any um, any other news that we really want to be on top of, Terry? Fannin County, Texas, hmm. sixty miles north of Dallas. Fannin County. Fannin County. The guy named Richie Witt, communications director for this a new community that is going up in that area. Uh, he said it's going to be one of America's most fun, most plush, and also one of its safest neighborhoods. It's going to be five star, a five-star resort with DEFCON 1 prefer, uh, preparation. Wow. DEFCON 1. It's a doomsday neighborhood. Richie Rich? The 50-foot solid marble statue and fountain that costs $3 million being built just off Highway 56 offers a peak of what's to come where developers lure potential residents who may have a bunker mentality <laughs> And are preparing for doomsday, yet still enjoy the lap of luxury. Okay. So yeah. you'll have a shelter, but it won't look like you have a shelter. Meh, it'll be there. Amenities in the $300 million development include a golf course, equestrian center, spa, gun ranges, stores, and restaurants. There'll be a row of helipads. Wow. Because you know those are needed. Sure. Um, 
they asked him, will it be a bunker? He goes, yes, we just hope never have to use the bunker part. Right. So we just call that the basement. 1,600 people will live there. A hilltop prairie, underground, earth-covered condos will be built with above-ground terraces overlooking lagoons and white sandy beaches. Wow. Yeah. It says, aside from food, developers say the community will feature off-the-grid sources of energy and water so people can safely live underground. You lower the blast, air blast locked doors and you're safe from the dangers. Developers said a 12-foot wall will be built around the community that will feature watchtowers, a DNA vault, and an air purification system. It sounds fantastic. Is the, does the air system also have a humidifier? Because I'd like humidified air, please. <laughs> Plus, they have to have probably a wine cellar yeah. like to bring up the level of quality. Absolutely. A cigar humidor. This music will be playing everywhere. Cause... Hello. Welcome to the Hello. bunker. Welcome to Doomsday Bunker in Dallas. Uh, they said the starting prices may be around $500,000. Yes. That's probably for like the, the, the two-room cottage. Can I get you a flak jacket? Two-room and a bath. Phase two is for everyone else, and they're, they're already waiting for a list of 500 people from across the country, Canada, England, Australia, and New Zealand. So the wait list is growing. The first phase, only invitations mostly for athletes and celebrities. Oh, that'll be fantastic. Yeah. So, I guess if there is a zombie apocalypse, we're going to Fallon County? Are you a celebrity or an no, athlete? No, I'm saying as a zombie, yeah. I'm going well, to Fallon County because they're going to have a party there. The uh, what, the first residents move in as early as the first quarter of 2018. Boy. You know who's on that list? Who? The George uh, Soros? Mark Cuban. This is in Dallas, right? Oh, yeah. Everyone's got a plane or helipad. It's got a helipad. <laughs> yeah. Mark well, Cuban, let's move right in. Welcome to the bunker. Yeah. Well, the benefit of that is you won't be going through what they're, that's, what's happening in St. Petersburg, Florida. You don't believe this? Out of Florida. No way. St. Petersburg man is behind bars after he reportedly broke into an apartment, stole cash, and cooked and ate a pizza while he was inside. Like... Just starts cooking a pizza? Yeah. There's some live footage of the man cooking his pizza. He's taking his own sweet time. According to an affidavit, police say Antion, Antion, David, allegedly broke into a locked apartment sometime between the 17th and 18th of October. Police say that David forced entry into the residence. Once inside, he took $35 of cash and reportedly cooked himself a pizza. Then he ate it, and police found David's fingerprints on the pizza box and in several locations throughout the apartment. The victim and the suspect do not know each other personally. Microwave pizza. So good, you'll interrupt your robbery to eat one. (laughs) Is that Totino's? (laughs) I gotta have me some Totino's. That's crazy. Um, a little rule, just so again uh, to coach the con. Eat before you before you have a home invasion or any type of robbery. Yeah, go into the full stomach. Always it's like when you go shopping. Stomach. Don't shop hungry. Don't rob hungry. Either. That's it. Because yeah. if you're rubbing, uh, if you're rubbing, if you're robbing a Seven Eleven, for example, and you see those hot dogs spinning, and you haven't eaten all day, you're going to be distracted. I don't know if those would be appetizing even then. Mm, maybe not. Maybe not. Anything else, Terry? Trump masks. 
Yes. There was a press conference or a rally that Trump had before the election. He actually held up a mask that someone had of him. And he was like, well, they got the hair right or something like that. Kind of made a joke. Apparently, those masks are just blowing off the shelf. You can't buy one anywhere. Amazing. They're made by a company out of Japan. They're only manufacturer of these rubber masks. It's working feverishly to catch up with a flood of orders for the Trump masks since his election last week. The 23 workers at the plant in uh, Tokyo are trying to produce 350 of these uh, ma- or these masks up to they're just trying to get as many on the market as they can. They cost $22 a piece. Wow. They're Who, sold at random places. But so. Is this to hide Trump's shame? No, just people want to have the mask. You'd think Halloween would have been the time to yeah, have them. Like, but now what, there's are you a have huge a big demand. Trump I don't know where you wear in it. November? Keanu Reeves wants it for his next movie where he robs a bank in a president's mask. Yeah, from now on, it won't be Nixon. Nixon won't be the preferred mask. It will now be Trump. <laughs> so it says the mask emphasizes characteristic hair and facial expression. They're first spray painted to add natural tan to the skin and yellowing <laughs> of the hair, so he's orange. And the employee hand paints details such as blue eyes for a lifelike resemblance. And then most customers wear the masks for a year, for year-end parties and other social gatherings. It's creepy. Yeah. I can't. Those masks, you know. They also make a Hillary Clinton and a President Obama plus many other international celebrities and politicians. But Trump is the one that's flying off the shelves. Well, it's because everybody can also imitate huge, huge, huge. I'll be a great president. I mean, they just they learn every little phrase he says and then who says? You know, once you get those lines down, then you just need the mask and one of his China silk ties and you're set. You're good to go. Good stuff. We'll take a break. When we come back, the bomb mom will be joining us. Julie Nelson will be here to help us learn how we can parent our kids to be kinder, less entitled All based in science, folks. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you raise a smarter family. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show in studio. Julie Nelson. Uh, we call her the Child Whisperer, the Bomb Mom. She has a website, parenting. No, uh, a spoonful of parenting.com. Make sure you type in a spoonful of parenting.com just to make sure you get to the right site. Um, she's the author of many books. One is A Parenting with Spiritual Power and Grab the. Keep it real and grab a plunger. Keep 25 tips for surviving parenthood. Keep it real and it's grab a plunger. It's a long title. No, but it's a great title. Yeah. I just keep remembering it's about a plunger. <laughs> And, and and tips <laughs> to help how to unclog your toilet and how to keep it all real. <laughs> Julie, welcome to the show, my friend. Hey, thanks. You've got the your sun kissed from the Hawaiian trip, and you are from Costa Rica. See, si. yours uh, muy bien. You went to Maui. What'd you do? Anything fun? Oh, lots of fun stuff. I went scuba diving. Really? Uh huh. Went all over. It's a great island. It's, it's a great a island. Great island. Mm-hmm. And just the smell of. They're on the road to Hana, the mango mm-hmm. trees. Oh. All the fresh fruit. Mm. How, how about Costa Rica? Excellent. Mm-hmm. Loved it. Uh, different smells, but great. Yeah. Monkeys, sloths. Yeah. Sloths, monkeys. Zip lining. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It was so fun. Beaches. Yeah. I found out I'm not a beach person. 
don't like it. But you love to read. Can you just sit and just... I, I can't, except mm-hmm. there's an expectation that I would want to get into the water. <laughs> you, and and my, you and my husband would get along really well. I love the beach. <laughs> I don't like water. I don't like salt water. And I don't oh, like man. sand. Oh, man. But I love beaches. See, I swam with the sea turtles. It Did you was really? awesome. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Were you the one that they kept saying, uh, don't touch the turtles, please? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can just see you. So today, Julie, you're going to walk us through an article about how to raise kinder, less entitled kids. Yeah, based on a Washington Post um, article. And it, she, uh, the, the author brings up some behavioral economics, which I thought that was fascinating because we talk about economic, or be, uh, behaviorism a lot. Right. But what about economics and how those two go together and how it kind of drives our behavior and our attitudes? Love it. Mm-hmm. Love it. In fact, there's a lot of... Uh, great lessons to learn about how if you can get somebody to buy something, that's the economic kind of the behavioral economics, get them to buy and purchase something, then I could also get my children to do things. Yeah, we've talked about that that parallel before in this Some show. Powerless, powerful yeah, opportunities. Yeah, absolutely, here. how you can get customers to to uh, complain less and do more. We talked about smells. Remember that mm-hmm. time? Yeah, okay, that, that was, was great. Weird. Yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> so the first term that they talk about in behavioral economics is fundamental attribution error. And that is where you normally, like let's say, for example, someone cuts you off in traffic um, or they show up late or they offend us, something like that. Yeah. We often attribute it to an intrinsic intrinsic characteristic that's a deficiency in that person. In other words, they are, you know, lazy, they are rude, yeah. that kind of stuff. They're okay. an idiot. Mm-hmm. Yet when we inconvenience others, we generally blame it on outside forces like, oh, he was in my blind spot. You know, yeah. that's why. Or the traffic was slow. That's why I'm late. You know? So true. Yeah. So extrinsic. So this Scrooge-like tendency is so universal that they call this fundamental fundamental attribution error. So how can we use this for parenting? Being better parents is the big question, right? Right. So next time you're at a restaurant and the kids are moaning, where's our food? This waitress is terrible. This is taking this lights too long, that yeah. kind of stuff. You point out that, you know, maybe the kitchen's backed up. And I do this a lot. I'm sure you do naturally yeah. where you say, you know, I bet they're shorthanded tonight. I yep. bet that waitress is working as hard as she can. And you can make it up because – And it has to do with the cooks back there. Right. We don't know why they're backed up. We don't know what's going on. But instead of attributing it to someone's evilness or lack of caring, <laughs> we could just attribute it to almost anything else. Situational, yeah. yeah. For example, um, when someone's driving fast on the freeway, my kids and I always go, oh, there, there they go off the hospital. She's having a baby. We just say that. You just say that. Just so that we wow, don't get we mad. we say something different. <laughs> That's nice of you. Does it involve your middle finger? <laughs> no, but it could. But it's like, oh, look at that jerk. Mm-hmm. Doesn't care about anyone else. Mm-hmm. But really, she could just be trying to get to the hospital. Right. So always like what I what I teach at the university is we give the benefit of the doubt to people instead of rushing to the worst first. Mm, and I we like tend it. to do the worst first with people where I think that you're you have bad motives. Um, you know, you're lazy, you're stupid, you're, you know, you're trying to make my day, you're rude, make my day terrible and be rude. But otherwise we flip it and then we feel better and then we act better towards people. Hmm. And our situation improves, even though we're still going to be late or traffic is still jammed up, we can sit there and be calm and less stressed about it because we're just giving the benefit of the doubt rather than rushing to the worst first. But see, it almost seems like, you know, we've evolved to always think the worst to protect us. But it also makes us kind of a jerk. Yeah. 
And we need to be kinder and more yeah. generous to people. Um, it's a way of uncentering our kids' universe and letting them think about things outside themselves because we tend to be egocentric when we're born, right? right. We're all, it's all oh, about yeah. us and the universe around, revolves around us. And so it takes them outside of this, you know, and look outside and see the better that there is in people and imagine that people really do have good motives, which we should be doing great um, right now. So that's yeah. the first one. The second one, um, this behavioral research talks about how, like, for example, on a Saturday morning, you've just you know, thought, I'm going to do this great breakfast, make fresh pancakes, give it to the kids. The sweet little kids look down and they go, no chocolate chips. Oh, that's where one, That's where you lose a kid. That's right where there. you want to just <laughs> – Throw the pancakes oh. at them, right? Um, and in the face and say, there you go, Buster, for right. not appreciating uh, this. Yeah. So it says that, you know, what What this, this it's called head, hedonic ad- adaptation. And that is where kids are used to having a certain level of expectation that now that's going to be the new norm. Mm-hmm. All right? So you've been giving chocolate chips, chocolate chips, chocolate chips. Yeah. And then one morning you don't. And all of a sudden... What's wrong with the, these pancakes? There's, these, There's no chocolate chips yeah. in the pancakes. <laughs> these pancakes they become They become they hedonous. Taste, hedonous, yeah. These, these pancakes taste terrible. Yeah. There's no taste anymore. There's, they suck. You know, and Everything then has to be easy and good and yummy and perfect. It's where we've gone. We've acclimated our taste buds to now desire the taste buds, and that's what pancakes should have mm-hmm. is, the, is the chocolate chips. So that's that hedonic so adaptation. You should, should you mix it up? Yes, that's what they say. Mix it up. For example, you know, I <laughs> had some crazy idea years ago that I would make Christmas morning special hmm. and I would serve cinnamon rolls, you know, and that would be our tradition. Oh, you, rolls. you make some killer cinnamon rolls. Oh, my rolls. gosh. Yeah, I do. But the problem is the cinnamon rolls is like a two-day event. Yeah. And if I'm up late, you know, on Christmas Eve putting together, you know, some kind of a, you know, bicycle, bicycle right? And I want to wrap presents and do stuff, Santa Claus-ish stuff. Then I'm also thinking, okay, then it's 2 a.m. and I'm going to have to start those cinnamon rolls. And then wake up at 6 a.m. to get them rising in the morning. And so after oh. a few years, I thought, I can't do this anymore. No. I'm, getting, I'm getting old. Right. I'm getting old. Just buy them. <laughs> Getting old, and then I didn't serve cinnamon rolls. Guess what the kids thought of that Sunday morning? Do you hate us, Mom? Yeah, exactly. They didn't care that Santa came. They didn't care there was presents. Right. But that Christmas morning was where's the cinnamon rolls? Don't they were, you? They were disappointed. Oh, that makes me mad. Right. It's this darn hedonic adaptation. adaptation. That's right. That's why I, whenever I make pancakes, mm-hmm. I'll make some with chocolate chip cookie or chocolate chips. I mean, and I'll make others with soap. <laughs> And you just mix it up. And then they don't know. But when they taste it, they're like, ooh, mmm, ooh. And then if you give them one of each, it balances them out. You give them the soap first, and then they're yeah. so grateful for the plain pancakes. Man, these aren't, these aren't as bad as those other ones. Yeah. It's yeah. Great. So it just means that you don't need to provide sweets or rewards regularly. Yeah. It's that behaviorism where you're always giving them you know, the reward always. Uh, then it becomes a new norm. It means like every time there's a, uh, a baseball game, afterwards we go to milkshakes. And the one time we don't go to milkshakes, everyone's complaining in the backseat, mm-hmm. right? Church. We, we... The church, the teacher at church that always gives a treat during their class uh-huh. and the other teachers don't. So they only like one teacher. Yeah. Then you're the new teacher and they're right. like, aren't you bringing treats? No. No, no well, then treats. I, then I hate you. No treats for you. 
<laughs> so don't keep up with the Joneses families. Don't feel like you have to create this new norm, which is an elevated, unrealistic norm, just because they've got the stuff. Right. You've got to get this stuff. And rewards should be something that happens as rewards once in a while, not a new lifestyle norm. Love it. Let's take a break. This, this is great advice. Watch out for fundamental attribution error. Watch out for the hedonic adaptation. More uh, when we come back with Julie K. Nelson, the bomb bomb. You can find out more um, on her website, a spoonful of parenting.com. Stick with us. We'll continue the discussion in just a minute. Welcome back, friends. Joining us, Julie Nelson. She is a professor at Utah Valley University, received a master's degree in marriage, family, and human development, and is the author of uh, many books, plus a killer website you got to go check out, spoonfulofparenting.com. She's, she's everywhere. She does everything, and she's a mom, more importantly, a mother of five children and has a wonderful husband that thinks she's incredible. I, I exactly. Imagine that. I mean, not imagine that for yeah, sure. No, I'm so flawed, and he thinks I'm just the greatest, which is often just – I just think I've just tricked him. Well, apparently you've medicated him. <laughs> so no, he's a great guy, and he you're is. a great he's amazing. woman. He's amazing. Hey, uh, talk to us. You're teaching us about how to raise a kinder, less entitled kid. One is to help him understand – that they can attribute or they can they can um, interpret any event in their life in a healthier way. It doesn't always have to be pro them. It yeah, always have to put don't go to down. the worst. Don't go to the worst first, but give the benefit of the doubt. Also, watch out for you know everything having to taste good, be good, feel that good. That hedonistic yes. quality that we have in all of us. Yes. What's some other tools or rules we can use to raise a kinder, less entitled kid? Well, we're talking about behavioral economics, and the next term that they talk about in this article is availability bias, where we overestimate the. Uh, some, something of what we see examples of. In other words, so um, everyone at school is wearing the $120 sneakers. Everyone thinks that's normal, and they start thinking that that's the way it's supposed to be, and that's the way the slice of the world represents everything. Yeah, so if you see two kids that have it, you think it's everybody. Yeah, and, and everyone knows that. As parents, we hear all the time, yeah, but yeah. so, you know, all my friends are doing it, <laughs> or so-and-so's parents let them do that. Right. So they have this um, availability bias that means everybody's doing it. It must be right. It must be that you have to do this because then we'd be out if we, we wouldn't be part of the... Everybody has an iPhone 7, Dad. Everybody. <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? Really? <laughs> How many of your friends have an iPhone 7? All of them. Okay, so name the names. Two Two of his friends. Yeah. He actually only has two friends, but that's a technicality. <laughs> it's So it really is they think – and as humans, we – I guess we – why do we do that? We want to we wanna think everybody has yeah, we the o- good thing. Yeah, the- we overestimate the prevalence of what we see examples of. So yeah. in other words, if you – have you ever not um, seen a, a car and it's a new car or you've never heard that word and then all of a sudden it's everywhere? Yeah. You see that word or you see that car and like, wow, it's everywhere now. Everyone's got oh, one. Oh, because you're just looking for it. You're you're always finding that anomaly. Yeah, yeah. Or it just be, it's just I have two friends that are, have the iPhone 7s mm-hmm. and now I overestimate that it must mean that it means everyone oh, has that. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. true. So that's the other type of economics which we – it's very skewed. It's very biased. And um, 
the article says, so we're always uh, telling your kids things like, you know, to bring them back to reality. You know, that's not normal, right? It's just one slice of the world that isn't like mm-hmm. you said. Tell me about your kids, or your friends who actually has. The I try to get 7. the real data, yeah. and then they end up seeing that most don't have it. And it works well with how they also feel that everyone hates me because when you're in junior high and you have a bad hair day or you're, you know, whatever it is, I'm wearing this coat that's got a stain on it. Everyone's looking at that. <laughs> Everyone's, you know, and the the point is we have to show to the kids, our kids, that not everyone, in fact, yeah. nobody. Nobody so, really cares enough to yeah, look at your clothes. Right. And it, even if you start asking people, ask your friends, how many people noticed what I was wearing today? And no one will even say, mm-hmm. I don't remember a single thing. So validating that they overestimate what people are thinking of themselves. That's huge. Even in the negative, too. Like everyone thinks I'm stupid or dumb. I don't know, Go pull your friends. I ask them how many think that you can't – you're not a good – I know. always just teach my kids – they're all all of your friends are thinking about themselves just like you are right now. Mm-hmm. Like you're worried that everyone's thinking of you mm-hmm. and your friends are all worried that everyone's thinking of them. Yes. The reality is nobody cares. <laughs> That's why mom and dad love you. That's right. We do think about you. We do care. And we do care. Yeah, so just let them know that not everyone has that. And even provide in their in their lives, like we talked about with the other attribute, where we said, you know, said the the hedonic adaptation that don't make it normal mm. um, that everyone does have the iPhone seven. Oh, it does. Well, it, well we got to get let's that get for, you let's one. Let's get you one. We too. want you normal. Yeah. In fact, um, what the advice for this one is is um, I, I had a really great neighbor one time, and of course all the kids were having the really fancy bikes, right? And he was raising kids. He wanted them to be normal and not to have this availability by just just because everyone has this bike you get these kind of bikes too so he went to the secondhand store this is back in the day when they made those banana seat bikes. oh i love right? that that was the best bike my right? sister had that i stole and it was so out it was it was just not in style right yeah, it was no. not the newest greatest bike he on purpose went to the secondhand store and i saw that bike and i'm like that's an awesome bike and he goes you know what every neighborhood needs a banana seat bike totally to bring down the level yeah. of, of of inflated expectation yeah because he's bringing down the norm saying totally. this is, you guys are not normal we got to balance out all you <laughs> crazy people out there and so he on purpose got that uh, to let them see through their kids that there is not everyone does this did they w- w- were his children beat up did they beat him up no they were great okay they were great so just kind of take them out to see diverse populations don't let's just let them stay in their neighborhood yeah. and just see their own kids but take them and serve you know like i take my kids out on thanksgiving we serve those who are, you know, homeless. And then when they come home, they realize, you know what? There are people who have different lives than totally. we do. Um, and that's not normal for everyone to have all this, you know, uh, all what we have. And they really do appreciate and they're kinder and and, gen- and more generous. We've got about one more minute. What's the final lesson to help raise kinder, less entitled kids? Okay. Well, we'll go to the last one, which would be the altruism. Um, basically, it just means that when you um, pay your kids – and this is really controversial, but paying your kids do chores or do any nice thing. Oh, here. Here's 10 bucks for doing that for me. Yeah. It takes away that altruism, that need to just do something nice. Because it's right. Because it feels good. Because mm-hmm. it's needed. They call it a helper's high where you just feel good for doing that thing. So they're saying that it – Probably is better to not pay them for you know doing chores, maybe for some larger things and big hmm. tasks, but not for everyday chores like unloading the dishwasher. Or else afterwards, if you ask them to do something, they're like, "Man, I'm good. I don't need the money today." 
Um, or they might say, mm, "How much are you going to pay me for carrying those groceries?" No, that's yeah, I hear that all right? the time. Right. <laughs> so call it life skills or family contribution time, but give them the helpers high that we are contributing to family, the family economy, and our lifestyle, rather than this social exchange where I'm going to do something for you and you do something for me. Love Let's see if that. it makes sure it's all even. That's great. Okay, and, and get them used to giving back and to feeling community. good and feeling good for doing something without money involved. Ah, Julie, you did it again. See, back from Hawaii. Aloha. Aloha. Julie Nelson's her name. Go to her website, a spoonful of parenting.com. You can get all of her old show segments and uh, plus everything she writes. She, she posts a ton of stuff there. You're not going to want to miss it. Kids, uh, we're trying to create these healthier kids, right? The ones that are kinder, nicer, but it is our parenting that matters. We'll take a break and uh, come back, visit two kids that we love BYU's uh, Sports Nation, Spencer and Jerem. See how they're growing up. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. In a different way, and I smell the sea like it. Ooh, when I'm calling you, welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. A little shout out to our good buddies down at BYU Sports Nation, who at the top of the hour will be starting their show. A show you will not want to miss. So we always like to do the Indian Love Call uh, from 1952, Slim Whitman's wonderful song. Hello, gentlemen. How are you, Spencer and Jerem? My life will be better once I finish these Lightning McQueen fruit snacks. Ooh, they sound yummy. Ka-chow. Ka-chow. Ka-ping. Hey, um, have you guys picked up your new BYU Broadcasting cup so you can get beverages out of the machine? I have not. I need to do that today. Yeah, you'll want to get on that. I will make that a top priority today. They just delivered ours. Well, I don't know. If, I think. Oh, yours was delivered. No, I about think that? that's just kind of how the show works. We we get a lot of special preferences like <laughs> that. On the third floor, I can't. Yeah. Just push a button and go up an elevator. And get yeah, it. it's really it's upstairs. And what they do know, we need to do to attain a status where we can have our cups delivered to us, Matt? Well, I think a lot of it is just working out every day. I like to stay focused. <laughs> I like to uh, plan ahead. You know, don't I never look past the next game. Like to get your gains. You mm-hmm. sound kind of boring. <laughs> Thank you very much. And extremely organized and efficient. It's because we just went through Trump for eighteen months. We had <laughs> you to talk. Earned it. We done. We done earned it. We and we just uh, you know we just found out also that um, that uh, some of the people that will be in the Clinton or the what's his name Trump's cabinet. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you know, would Sarah Palin surprise you if she became a Secretary of the Interior? No. Okay. Well, she surprised me. But she's on the exterior, though. Yeah, she's on the. She, on she'll the be the first exterior interior president or secretary. Does she understand Iowa's needs in Alaska? Absolutely. Does anything surprise you with Donald Trump? Really? No. Okay. I mean, That's why I'm saying I'm not surprised by anything. Don't you think that a requirement for the interior secretary should be knowing how to gut a deer? Yes. And you need to be a former sportscaster as well, which Sarah Palin is. Is she really? Yes. Wow. Does she do play-by-play? I don't think she – I think she was just local media sportscaster. Did you used to use her videos to practice with? No, but I'm going to look it up right now. I'm typing in Sarah Palin yeah. sportscaster video. <laughs> Is it how, how's it looking? Let's see. Blocked by BYU. There you go. Oh. Sarah Palin on Glenn Rice's Wolverine. So she was a sports reporter for KTUU TV. How cool! 
covering the Big Ten in the late eighties. Oh yeah, she had serious claw bangs. That's true. She Bob bang. Perfect. She bang. Yes. Um, yes. That that that's always fun. Hey, I had a great guest on my show today that I think you two ought to go listen to or have him on your show. Who, it's who the was it? it was um, it was a, a researcher from San Diego State who's in sports marketing. You had someone and, from San Diego State on a BYU radio show. Oh yeah, we have him from all over the country. We're an international show. Interesting. Anyway, that's probably one of the reasons they delivered my cup. Because we've got to be bilingual and everything. Um, one <laughs> we do not play instruments, though. You said bilingual. Yeah. No. I, I, I think I meant languages. You meant languages. Yeah, so, yeah, so did I. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, weird. Uh, this guy talked about the fact that you need a villain in sports. Yes. Because if you build the story with a villain, you double the power of like the 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 event cuz yeah. not only will you watch your fans will love BYU but they also check the scores to make sure Utah lost. Yeah, that follows theology as well. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Is that that's why Christian theology The devil, right? There's a that's, villain, right? Yeah. yeah. So like we're comfortable in that story. Mm. There's a hero mm-hmm. and there's a villain. I love it. I love it. I, I, Binary. I really think that plays into that. And anyway, just listen to the show. To change your life. Hey, we, uh, we you, listen to all three hours every morning, and we just have it on in the background. And yeah, sure you know what? I've been everything. to your meetings, and I know you don't. So <laughs> <laughs> this morning we played. Uh, we I, play a lot of Green Day. Yeah, there. that's yeah. I've, what I believe. You are listening to music. What's on your show today? Oh, you know, just the usual blue goggled overreactions <laughs> after one basketball game. <laughs> Is that it? <laughs> they, they, you, they're going to take the NCAA tournament now? Well, that's uh, been discussed by quite a few of our fans. That and Eric Mika being the National Player of the Year and the Lone Peak 3 living up to the hype and BYU is oh! never going to lose again. Oh! <laughs> We're going to discuss the overreactions. And are some merited? We'll discuss that. That's a great word. Um, that's, that's okay. That's a very real discussion. Mm-hmm. Jamal Williams received a prestigious invite. Mm. Yes, Princeton, yeah. <laughs> Blaine Fowler will join us as well, break down BYU hoops. Uh, the Southern Utah game coming up Saturday in football. Excuse me, the Massachusetts game. I don't even know who we're playing. Uh, and then uh, between two, the lines with uh, Kate Hansen. Between yeah. Two ferns. Between two ferns, the lines <laughs> with Zach Galifianakis and Kate Hansen. We have two Olympians on the show today, Kate Hansen. That's right. It's and, an Olympic show. And Ed Eyestone. Hey, how about that? Oh, I love Ed. He's been on the show. He's, isn't he great? Oh, he's fantastic. That's, you've got, it's an Olympic day. Yes. Wow. That it is, my friend. Well, I'm proud of you. We're feeling good. Are you doing anything to celebrate Clean Out Your Refrigerator Day? Oh, no, but that's, we do need to clean out a refrigerator. If yeah, I a refrigerator that we know about. <laughs> Uh, you, is there something you want to talk about there? No, no. Okay, nothing no. to see here. No. Is it in a petri dish? <laughs> Man, I really regret leaving that sour cream in there in 2014. Darn it! <laughs> but take it's take like, a little of it if you have a little bacterial infection. You got a little Stranger Things going on in the I've sour cream. I've experienced few grosser things in my life than cleaning out a refrigerator. Oh. That- as a missionary in oh, South Korea. Oh, yeah, because yeah, you, you might have been there maybe six weeks. So you're like, I, I don't know how long this stuff's been in In there. South Korea. Yes. And in South Korea. Oh, like, wow. There was some soup that had a full level of moss and mold. Oh, that's growing just gross. That is gross. I hate when that happens. <laughs> the sad thing is you actually <laughs> ate it, though, didn't you? No. 
Oh my goodness. Because you're invincible. Oh, right. yeah. Nothing well, like boxed, yeah, boxed milk uh, in Brazil. Okay. And in, in Korea. Fr- yeah. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> I had a hard enough time with the boxed milk, period. I'm like, can this really keep it cold? All right, guys. I got to let you go. I got to yeah. let you go. Yeah, we got to go. You got to go. Go shave. Go drink your boxed milk. Go. Okay. Ch- go ch- make sure you chew it, though. Don't just swallow it. Oh. <laughs> Have fun, Is guys. Is cottage cheese or milk? I love me some Ooh. boxed milk. Knock them dead. Have a great show. That is chunky milk. Blah. I'm telling you, everybody has had a moment where you pulled something out of your refrigerator and you thought, what? This could cure cancer. And other times you think, man, if I just cut off that little section, then I can still eat this. Yeah. Have you thought that? Have you ever thought maybe I shouldn't cut off that little section and eat it because maybe that's not appropriate, you know, because it, maybe it's not just that section. It's the fact it's been in that long. Hmm. You might want to think that one through. Hey, um, here's a little uh, advice for you um, out of Denver, Colorado, uh, actually out of Colorado. Colorado City uses toilet paper to help repair cracked roads. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The Denver Post reports that Littleton crews have used bathroom tissue to help seal up cracks along more than 120 streets. Officials say toilet paper was applied with a paint roller over freshly laid tar used to fill asphalt uh, cracks. The paper absorbs the oil from the tar as it dries, keeping it from sticking to the pedestrian soles um, or the car or bike tires that drive over it. Must be that uh, three-ply. Yeah, it's three-ply, triple-ply. The biodegradable paper will break down and be gone uh, in a few days. Littleton spokesperson Kelly Nard says the toilet paper allows traffic to retake the roads more quickly. That's great. See, they're solving the world's problems with just a little Charmin. Don't squeeze the Charmin. Hey, get Jimmy, get out of the road. Quit squeezing the Charmin. Ah, uh, another use. And by the way, that lady that walks out of the restroom with like toilet, a trail of toilet paper hooked to her shoe, now she's just helping. Just make sure she walks on the tar. See, we can all give, folks. We can all give. As you know, we like to wrap up the show with a uh, hero story. This hero today, according to newsers, listen to this. Uh, Coming across Bruce Springsteen on a broken down motorcycle on the side of the road could probably be a lyric from one of his songs, but it really happened for a group of guys from New Jersey, reports the AP via Facebook post. A group from Freehold American Legion was riding after a Veterans Day event Friday when Dan Barcolo says he saw a stranded motorcyclist up ahead near Allaire State Park in Wall Township. Bikers got to stick together, Barcolo said. I stopped to see if he needed help, and it was Bruce Springsteen. Barcolo says they tried to get help uh, to help get his bike running, but when they couldn't, Springsteen, wearing a brown uh, riding jacket and a red handkerchief, hopped on the back of Ryan Bailey's bike, and they headed to a local bar. We sat there and shot the breeze for a half hour, 45 minutes, till his ride showed up, Barcolo said. Nice guy, real down to earth, just talked about motorcycles and his old free and his old freehold days. Springsteen was raised in Freehold and still lives in New Jersey. The American Legion Post says Springsteen is eligible to join since his father was a veteran. It was nice to help out, Bailey said. One freehold person helping out another. So there you have it. Uh, how cool is that? 
group of uh, American Legion members from Freehold finding their hero, really, and then helping him out. See, there's people out there that'll pull over for you. They didn't know it was Bruce Springsteen. That could have been Jimmy. Could have been Jimmy Buffett in the Keys. Could have been anybody. That's what makes us heroes, folks. We've we uh, when we see a need, we pull over, we help, we do what we can. That's what this country needs. Remember, you can worry about what's happening in Washington, but you can also just live a life that's healthier, that lifts everyone around you. Let's take care of each other. Until tomorrow, make it a great one. Look after each other, and uh, we'll talk again tomorrow. <laughs>